Hey, mate, 40 here, and I think here in the 40-verse, we are particularly well prepared for what's going on in Europe, what's going on with Vladimir Putin, because for years we've been talking about the realist approach to politics, the realist approach to life, the realist approach to reality and morality, the realist approach to international relations, the realist approach to Torah study, right? Try to stay in reality is the ongoing theme of this show. And we use a lot of theories to try to simplify and get at the essence of reality in a particular area. So sometimes for a quarterback, knowing, you know, who's the mic linebacker. All right. That's that's your magic key for decoding what kind of defense you're going to be facing. And uh, sometimes you can just tell by how quick people are in response. You can get a good read of their IQ. And in a certain situations, knowing someone's cranial capacity, their, their cognitive capacity, that's the magic key for trying to assess a situation. Now we are looking at uh, Vladimir Putin. What does he want? Surely it's a lot more than just Ukraine. And does what Putin wants, is that the same? Is that coterminous with what Russia wants? Is what's good for Vladimir Putin good for Russia? And, of course, it's not going to be exactly equal. So it seems to me that, overall, uh, Vladimir Putin has been a highly effective leader of Russia. But individuals' incentives are not identical to the incentives of the corporation or of the nation-state. Whoa, sat next to an economist who specialized in analyzing corporate boards and what are the incentives for corporate board members and how are they different from the incentives for corporations, right? So, for example, Vladimir Putin is about 69, 70 years of age. It's not going to be around forever. He wants a legacy. And Putin is... Make some kind of flashy splash, make dramatic uh, gestures to try to establish their reputation, to try to burnish their reputation. But many of the things we do to burnish our individual reputations not necessarily good for the groups that we represent. So try to figure out the audio here. Let's get a little Professor John J. Mearsheimer. International realities. In 2020, Professor Mearsheimer won the James Madison Award which is given once every three years by the American Political Science Association to an American political scientist who has made a distinguished scholarly contribution to political science. So John Mearsheimer has been talking about how this Ukraine crisis is primarily the West's fault because it's equivalent to you push and push someone, all right? You push their buttons, you make them feel unsafe, you invade territory that they believe should be theirs, and then you're all shocked and appalled when they react. And that's essentially what the West has done. They have kept moving NATO closer and closer to the borders of Russia, making Russia feel threatened, naturally, normally, because the United States has its own Monroe Doctrine. We don't like it when, when uh, the Soviet Union was in Cuba. We would not like it if China got involved in the Americas. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So John Mearsheimer makes the argument that... Uh, it's the West who caused this crisis in the Ukraine. 
Professor Mearsheimer, it is an honour to have you with us today. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I wish I was not uh, here virtually, but that I was physically at Cambridge. Uh, I'd actually love to come to Cambridge sometime uh, and talk to you and, and to meet people, go to lunch, go to dinner, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, I understand these virtual talks are a good second best, but nevertheless, they are a second best. Uh, Tom asked me to talk for about 20 minutes on the whole subject of the Ukraine crisis, uh, which I, of course, have written about and talked about extensively since 2014. So I'm happy to do that, and I'll answer questions on Ukraine, and I'm willing to answer questions on uh, almost any subject uh, you folks would like to talk about. Uh, let me do two things. First, let me talk about the origins uh, and the history of this crisis. So I've been playing Mearsheimer for five, six, seven years now, right? He is the preeminent theorist of offensive realism. So there are various schools in international relations for theory, and there are various schools for the international relations theory of realism. He focuses on offensive realism, that what's most important in trying to understand the capabilities of a nation state are what are its offensive capabilities, like how much damage can they do? So I love the analogy. I think it's from Mishima that we're essentially all locked in an iron cage together, right? And there's no higher authority coming to bail us out and to adjudicate our disputes, right? Nation states are like rival drug gangs. And I've used this analogy over and over again for years, right? If you make a drug deal and it goes wrong, you can't call the police, you can't invoke the courts, you can't sue anyone, right? You are operating above and beyond normal legal procedures. And in international relations, you are operating above and beyond normal legal procedures because, yeah, even though there are things called international law, it doesn't really matter much unless countries with power decide to enforce international law. So we're all locked in an iron cage together and we can never be sure of anyone's intentions because we don't even fully know our own intentions because our own intentions are constantly changing based on our own capabilities, our own energy, our own alliances, right? The amount of power that we can muster, our own mood, and what, what are the opportunities that are presented before us. And uh, then talk about why it's on the front burner today. Uh, and then let me say a few words in conclusion about where we're headed. Uh, the conventional wisdom in the West, and this is certainly true in a place like Britain and the United States, is that Putin is responsible for this crisis. It's the Russians. And uh, the chat says, what's the difference, bro? No one listens to John Mearsheimer. It's not like any politician listens to him. Biden and Harris definitely don't listen to him. So, yeah, President Joe Biden's political weakness, his low standing in the polls, his lack of effectiveness during his uh, 13 months in power, that makes him particularly susceptible to doing the silly, stupid things that he's doing, such as sending more U.S. troops to Europe, sending troops to Poland, and putting more importance on this situation than it necessarily deserves. So Biden is doing the wrong thing because he's so weak politically. He's trying to shore up his standing because he doesn't want to be accused of, oh, Biden, he's the guy who, who lost Ukraine. And John F. Kennedy plunged us into the Cuban Missile Crisis for similar reasons. 
he was facing very difficult midterm election in the fall of 1962, and he wanted to rob the Republicans of the argument that, that John F. Kennedy and the Democrats were weak on defense. And so as a result, he brought this world closer to nuclear war than it ever happened before, in large part to shore up his political standing. Right? So a lot of what happens in the world is in part because of individuals, though overall I think structure is more important than individuals. So yes, individuals matter, individuals face incentives. So any politician faced with the incentives of a midterm election where they were facing like devastating blowback would, would be very inclined to do all sorts of things in international relations that would necessarily be against their country's interest but might be in their party's interest and in their personal interest. So the structure and the situation affects the incentives that individuals operate under. So U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine would not be that different if Donald Trump was in office, if Joe Biden was in office, if Tulsi Gabbard was in office, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in office, because the structure of international relations is that we're all locked in this iron cage together. We don't know other people's capabilities or motivations, and so we are strongly incentivized to try to come across as strong as possible. But if we operate under this strong incentive, it does, doesn't mean anything that we do that we think will make us stronger. Many of the things that we do to make us stronger personally or as a community or as a nation state end up making us weaker. So Putin invading Ukraine may end up being the death knell of Russia and the death knell of Putin. Uh, they're good guys and bad guys. And of course, we are the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys. This is simply wrong. Uh, the United States mainly, but the United States and its allies are responsible for this crisis, not Putin and Russia. Now, why do I say that? Very important to understand that what the West has been trying to do since 2008 is turn Ukraine into a Western bulwark and not just that, all sorts of U.S. politicians have said we need a revolution in Russia. In other words, overthrow the Russian regime. But mainly Democratic politicians have said this. And, of course, that's going to push Putin into a corner. That's going to be a threat. And when people are under threat, they don't tend to react calmly, right? When, when you push people and put them under threat, well, they tend to react in, in more extreme ways than they would without the threats. So this is uh, John Mearsheimer here talking about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. And why are we playing Mearsheimer? Hey, the politicians don't listen to him. Well, it's important to try to understand what's going on and to understand the world around us. You need theory, right? Theories are simplified pictures of reality. And John Mearsheimer wrote a long paper in 2014 about the virtues of theory because theories explain how the world works in particular domains, right? There's a theory for what do you do when the defense is playing too high safeties, right? There are theories about that. And there are theories about the capacity of cognitive uh, measurements to predict how, how groups will operate in the real world. So 
This is from uh, John Mearsheimer's 2014 essay. The world around us is, is blooming and buzzing confusion, all right? It's infinitely complex. It's difficult to comprehend. And to make sense of what's happening in the world around us, we need theories. We need to decide which factors matter most, right? So we have to leave many factors out because they are less important for explaining what's going on. So theories make the world comprehensible because they help us zero in on what's most important. So theories are like maps. Maps are not exact replicas of reality. Maps distort reality, but they are good enough usually, right? Maps and theories simplify a complex reality so that we can grasp what's most important, right? You can have a highway map of the United States. It could include major cities, roads, rivers, mountains, and lakes, but it would leave out many less prominent features such as individual trees and buildings or the rivets on the Golden Gate Bridge, all right? So like a theory, a map is an abridged version of reality. Now, unlike maps, theories provide a causal story. So theories say one or more factors can explain a particular phenomenon. So theories are built on simplifying assumptions about which factors matter the most for explaining how the world works. So realist theories hold the balance of power considerations account for the outbreak of great power wars and the domestic politics has less explanatory power. So whether or not a nation goes to war doesn't really matter much whether it's a democracy or an authoritarian or a totalitarian state. It's balance of power considerations. It's the structure of international relations and the relative strengths and weaknesses of the nation states at under consideration that are most important. So theories boil things down to variables or concepts. So a theory will say how key concepts are defined. They will make assumptions about key actors and theories will identify how independent intervening and dependent variables fit together which then enables one to infer time when it comes to international relations. Now, they're not universal, right? They apply only to particular times and particular spaces. And the scope of a theory can vary significantly. You can have grand theories such as realism or liberalism, which purport to explain whole broad patterns of state behavior. All right, let's get back here to John Mishimer. On Russia's border. And that policy had three dimensions to it. The first and most, most important is NATO expansion. The idea was that we were going to expand NATO eastward to include Ukraine. The second element of the strategy was EU expansion. So in other words, it was not just NATO expansion that was going to go and include Ukraine. It was also EU expansion. And the third element of the strategy was the color revolution. Uh, and in the case of Ukraine, that was the orange revolution. And the idea was to turn Ukraine into a liberal democracy like Britain, like the United States. And not only a liberal democracy, but a liberal democracy that was allied with the United States. Because again, this is all part and parcel of a strategy that is designed to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border. 
Now, as I said to you, the most important element of the strategy is NATO expansion. And that's why the April 2008 Bucharest NATO summit is of immense importance. So whether it's the United States that controls Ukraine or Ukraine controls Ukraine or Putin controls Ukraine or Russia controls Ukraine, it doesn't really have that much significance for the United States. Right? There isn't a whole lot of you know, particularly valuable stuff in the Ukraine directly for the United States. But by pushing NATO right up to the borders of Ukraine, you put Russia under pressure. When people are under pressure, they react in unpredictable ways. And so we're increasing the odds of, of war with Russia. We're increasing the odds of some kind of nuclear exchange. We're dramatically increasing the odds of bad things happening to us because we put Russia under pressure. And now we've got all these variables at play, and we don't know which one's going to explode. At the end of that April 2008 Bucharest summit, NATO announced that Georgia and Ukraine would become part of NATO. They said, this is going to happen, period. The Russians made it unequivocally. So I like democracy compared to an authoritarian state. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather live in a democracy, but it doesn't mean that democracy is the cure for all ills all right democracy is not the cure for great power politics conflict and i like religion but religion makes some people worse uh religion isn't going to solve every problem so religion properly lived out makes some people better and makes some communities better but religion sometimes makes people and communities worse and i like to study history right but the study of history is not going to solve all our problems either so the world's infinitely complex and many of the things that are say good for us personally or the type of regime that we want to live under does not necessarily translate into other situations clear at that point that that is not going to happen they drew a line in the sand as you all know there were two big tranches of NATO expansion before that 2008 meeting. The first tranche of NATO expansion was in 1999. That included Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. So if you don't know a lot and you live in the West, you think NATO is a great thing. And NATO, when facing the threat of the Soviet Union, NATO was a great way for Western and Central Europe to band together to try to halt any possible expansion of the Soviet Union. Okay, time and place, NATO was great. Right now, or particularly since 1993, when NATO has steadily expanded, NATO has become a detriment to U.S. security. We would be much better being out of NATO. And one of the problems with this conflict of the Ukraine is that it gives NATO a reason for being. Uh, under Donald Trump, NATO was simply withering away. And we have steadily shifted resources out of NATO into Far East, Northeast Asia, and, and somewhat to, to the Middle East. We don't have any vital national security interests in Europe anymore, but now we're getting sucked back into Europe in large part because Joe Biden is so politically weak and he doesn't want to look as though he, he's a wimp. So he's trying to look tough, even though the way he's doing it is against American interests. Then there was a second tranche in 2004, which included countries like Romania uh, and the Baltic states and so forth and so on. 
The Russians swallowed those two NATO expansions. They intensely disliked both of them, but they swallowed them. When NATO said in 2008 that expansion would now include Georgia and Ukraine, the Russians drew a line in the sand. It's very important to understand that. They said, this is not happening. It is no act. It's, it's similar to a lot of other things. Like a certain amount of religion may be good for a person, but more religion than that turns them into a freak. A uh, certain amount of exercise can be good. Too much exercise can be harmful. A certain amount of water is good. You drink too much water, it can have great harm. So everything is proportionate. Everything depends on context. And so NATO, when it was facing the Soviet Union, pretty good uh, mechanism. But NATO now, it's a detriment to U.S. national security. Accident that in August of 2008, a few months after the April 2008 Bucharest summit, you had a war between Russia and Georgia. Remember, Georgia is the other country besides Ukraine that is going to be brought into NATO. The Russians said, that ain't happening. And another big problem with our national security industry is what type of people go into international relations? What type of people go into the State Department? You know, what type of people are particularly interested in America's relations with the world? Okay, people who want to make a difference. People who want to make a name for themselves. Right? People who want to feel important. We all want to feel important. People going into international relations from an American perspective, they have led to America being much more involved overseas than is in America's interests. But, you know, standing up to Putin or, you know, working some special deal so that you know, Ukraine has, uh, you know, a different type of government, just like we did in 2014 when we shifted the power in Ukraine. We, we contributed to a shift in Ukrainian power from someone who was a, a Putin puppet to someone who was not a Putin puppet. And it's all very exciting when you're pulling the strings behind the scenes and you're moving, you know, this person into power and you're taking that person out of out of power and you're getting the United States, you know, deep into involvement in Africa and in Eastern Europe, right? It's all very exciting for people who are professional diplomats and people in, you know, the international relations community, right, who, who are getting paid to, you know, pull these machinations, right? So it's very exciting for these individuals, not so good for the American national interest. And you had a war. In it's a little bit like in real life streamers, people going down the street and being obnoxious. Right? It can be compelling video, but it's bad for the community as a whole. Right? It deteriorates uh, social trust and social cohesion to have people going down the street saying obnoxious things. August 2008. In February... February 22nd, to be exact, February 22nd, 2014, the crisis broke out over Ukraine. And it was mainly precipitated by a coup in Ukraine that overthrew a pro-Russian leader and installed a pro-American leader. The United States was involved in that. Right. So America installs a pro-American leader. It sounds wonderful, right? But installing a pro-American leader could uh, rebound on us in, in negative ways. It's like uh, 
the alt-right when they moved from a movement that was primarily online into in real life activism they destroyed the movement right so sometimes you don't want to go into in real life activism sometimes you don't want to install uh leaders who are pro-american or pro group your group because for every action there's there are reactions at coup the russians went ballistic this is hardly surprising they went ballistic and uh, ricardo says isn't putin a great friend of the oligarchs He's a great friend of some oligarchs as long as they do what he wants. And he's a, a sworn enemy and a destroyer of other oligarchs. And they did two things. First is they took Crimea from Ukraine. Why did they do that? You understand that there is a very... It's like someone at work who oversteps his authority. And let's say he doesn't get fired but he gets his wings trimmed, right? His responsibilities are reduced. His power is reduced. Maybe his pay is reduced. So the West overstepped in Ukraine and they got their wings clipped. Important naval base called Sevastopol on Crimea. And there's no way the Russians are gonna let Sevastopol become a NATO naval base. This is not gonna happen. That's the principal reason that the Russians took Crimea. And the second thing that they did is that the and a question in the chat is it true that ukraine is russian parts of ukraine are heavily russian and other parts of the ukraine lean more towards the west russians took advantage of a civil war that broke out in eastern ukraine almost immediately after the february 22nd 2014 crisis so one of the when I have been like physically threatened or physically assaulted, I don't think I've fought back, at least since grade school, because you never know how these things are going to escalate. So if, if I fight back, yeah, maybe, you know, I'd be more of a man and I'd, I'd feel better about myself and maybe, you know, other people would be less likely to pick on me. But you're also escalating the situation so that, you know, someone could get really hurt. So I could face criminal charges or I could get really hurt. And so the west by pushing right up to russia's door they've escalated the situation put putin and russia under pressure and when people lash out from that perspective you never know what's going to happen but you've dramatically increased the odds of something terrible happening for you and what the russians have done is they have fueled that civil war and they have made sure that their allies who are mainly russian speakers and in many cases russian in eastern Ukraine are not defeated by the Ukrainian government. They, in effect, are wrecking Ukraine. The Russians are basically saying, we will wreck Ukraine before we- Civilization hangs by such a narrow thread, right? So anything that diminishes social cohesion and social trust is terrible because it's so hard to build up social cohesion and social trust in the San Fernando Valley. Right, people walked around in the 1960s without locking their cars, without locking their homes, right, without installing all sorts of uh, security equipment, right, because it was safe then. But after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you got this explosion in crime. What came with it was a destruction in social cohesion and social trust, and now we've, we've got, uh, since the Ferguson effect in 2014, we had another explosion in crime and then the Black Lives Matter 
uh, terrorism of 2020, another massive explosion in crime. And we're just hacking away at social trust and social cohesion. And it's so difficult to build it up, right? It's so easy to wreck civilization. It's so hard to maintain civilization. And one of the ways you, you maintain civilization is by trying to ensure that there's trust between people and the more that people have in common, right? The more likely people are to cohere and to have trust with each other. So that's why diversity is such a threat to civilization because diversity means that it's a great thing that we have very little in common with our fellow citizens. And it's so hard to come back from that decohering of a society, which we've had in large parts of the United States, particularly since the 1960s, through excessive amounts of immigration and a whole new constitution whereby certain groups are sacralized and they're not held to the same moral standards as other groups. We allow Ukraine to become a member of NATO. So the Russian response is very important to understand this. In 2014, when the crisis first broke out into the open in response to what had happened in Bucharest in 2008, the Russian response was twofold. Number one, they took Crimea. And you should all understand Crimea is gone. It is never going back to Ukraine, one. And number two, they have said implicitly that we will destroy Ukraine. We will wreck it before we will let it become a member of NATO. Now, the question you want to ask yourself is, why are the Russians doing this? This is realpolitik 101. And the fact that people in the West, especially in places like Britain and the United States... So realism means that people aren't simply motivated by nice-sounding things, right? I love people, but... I also contain the capacity for hatred, right? I can be cuddly, but I can also be quite nasty, all right? And that's just, that's just the, the human condition. And realism accepts uh, the reality of human nature that a lot of what drives us is really nasty. And yeah, it'd be great if every, you know, everyone was a Democrat, small d, and if we all lived together in peace and tolerance, right? But that's just not how people operate. Don't understand this boggles my mind. I just don't understand it. The idea that you could take a military alliance run by the United States, the most powerful state in the world, and run it up to Russia's borders, and the Russians wouldn't be bothered by it, is simply unthinkable. And uh, Ricardo says, Luke, what would it take to convince Americans to mobilize for war again? Ukraine certainly isn't it. Correct. And uh, Taiwan, no chance. Well, the decision to militarily support Taiwan has already been made. So a lot of foreign policy decisions and a lot of decisions about where we send troops and where we send military assets do not depend on popular approval or, or agreement. The American president has essentially all the foreign policy rights that King George III had in 18th century England. The American president can send troops wherever he wants. He can launch nuclear weapons, right? Every democracy contains considerable elements of dictatorship and every dictatorship contains considerable elements of non-dictatorship. So when dictators don't perform, when the situation changes so that their decisions look bad, then they frequently get overthrown. 
So we, we live in, in a complicated world. The U.S. is militarily engaged to support Taiwan, and it doesn't really matter whether uh, the people are behind it or not. So a lot of decisions are just made by an elite, and uh, popular will doesn't really play that much into it. So we're not going to risk American soldiers in large numbers to defend Taiwan, but we have all sorts of military assets that will defend Taiwan. We in the United States have the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine says that no distant great power is allowed to form a military alliance with a country in the Western Hemisphere and is certainly not allowed to move military forces into the Western Hemisphere. I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis very well. What happened there is the Soviets put nuclear-tipped missiles in Cuba. The United States... And that wasn't the only thing that happened there. John F. Kennedy was facing a very tough midterm election, and he had all sorts of incentives to appear tough. Incentives that did not correlate exactly with what was in America's best interests. So here's a little bit more from this excellent John Mearsheimer 2014 essay about the virtue of theory. So theories provide overarching frameworks. They give us the big picture of what's happening in a very complicated and buzzing and blooming reality. Right? There's no way to understand an infinitely complex world just by collecting facts. So Carl von Clausewitz said this, anyone who thought it necessary or even useful to begin the education of a future general with the knowledge of all the details has always been scoffed at as a ridiculous pedant. Right? No activity of the human mind is possible without a certain stock of ideas. In other words, we need theories. So theories provide us with economical explanations for what's going on. They help us to understand, to interpret by just taking out of buzzing, blooming, confusing reality, just certain key variables, right? So in economics, you have, you know, Keynesianism or monetarism or rational expectations or behavioral economics and international relations scholars array their theories as isms for the similar reason. So the more complicated, the more diverse the reality, the more dependent we are on theories, on mental maps to help us navigate the terrain. Right? So international relations has to place a very high value on theory, theories such as realism, because it's trying to make sense of a large and complex universe. So international studies, international studies, IR, international relations, deal with the largest, most complicated social system possible. And it's this complexity that accounts for the diverse range of traditions in the field. So theories revolutionize our thinking. Right? They transform our understanding of what's important. And they explain puzzles that made little sense before the theory was available. So consider Charles Darwin's impact on how people think about the origin of human species. Right? Before Darwin published his work on evolution, most people believed that God created all the different species. Darwin's theory undermined that view, caused many people to change their thinking about God, religion, the whole nature of life itself. I can't think of any thinker more influential in the past 200 years than Charles Darwin. I can't think of any book more influential in the past 200 years and the origin of species. So theory also enables prediction, right? And we need to predict for, for our daily lives, for making policy, for advancing social science. So we're all constantly trying to make decisions about the future and trying to determine the best strategy for achieving desired goals. We are trying to predict the future. And because much of the future is unknown, we have to rely on theories to predict what is likely to happen if we choose one strategy over another. Theory is essential for diagnosing policy problems and making policy decisions.
Right? We have to rely on theory because we're trying to shape the future. We're interested in cause and effect, and that's what theory is all about. So to be concerned with policy is to focus on the intent to produce certain effects. So policy thinking is causality thinking. And theory, fifth, is crucial for effective policy evaluation. So a good theory identifies indicators we can use to determine whether a particular initiative is working. So if your theory of counterinsurgency suggests that the key to victory is killing a large number of insurgents, then body counts are an obvious benchmark for assessing progress. But if one's theory of victory identifies winning hearts and minds as the keys to success, then reliable public opinion polls would be a better indicator. So effective policy evaluation depends on good theory. And then theories inform our understanding of the past. Theories enables, enable us to look back at the past and to better understand ourselves and our history. Theory is helpful when the facts are sparse. So in the absence of reliable information, we have little choice but to rely on theory to guide our analysis. So during the Cold War, the dearth of reliable facts about the Soviet Union made it particularly necessary to rely on theory to understand what was going on inside that closed society. So theories are particularly valuable for understanding novel situations, such as the one we're in right now with U Ukraine. We don't have that many historical precedents to guide our thinking. And theory is critical for conducting valid empirical tests. So social science essentially consists of developing and testing theory. ...said this is categorically unacceptable. Military forces from afar are not allowed in the Western Hemisphere. And we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the end result is those missiles were removed. When the Soviets were later talking about building a naval base at Cienfuegos, the United States told them in no uncertain terms, you are not building a naval base at Cienfuegos. Just not going to happen. The United States views the Western Hemisphere as its backyard, and it prohibits distant great powers from coming into its backyard. Well, don't you think the Russians are going to be deeply disturbed by the United States turning Ukraine into a bulwark right on its borders? Of course they are. And the Russians told us that immediately after the Bucharest summit. The Russians made it categorically clear, categorically clear, that Ukraine is not going to become part of NATO. But of course, the Americans and their allies did not listen because we believe that we're the good guys. We're a benign hegemon here in the United States, and we can do pretty much anything we want in the world. And for a while, it looked like we could get away with that. As I said, the Russians accepted the first NATO expansion, the 1999 one, and they accepted the second NATO expansion. But after Bucharest, they said, this is not happening. So you had this major crisis that broke out in February 2014. Now, the crisis, the crisis tamped down quite a bit after 2014. Right, we would not be in this crisis right now, probably if Donald Trump was in power. But because Biden feels so weak and because Biden is more wedded to elite opinion, then our, our elites are more interventionist than regular Americans 
because it's it's so exciting and they have the power to you know get involved and to try to change things around the world it uh, provides a sense of meaning and importance and excitement and maybe you get to have you know sex and make money but uh, those incentives don't necessarily align with what's good for the united states of america christopher cordwell has a book review that's uh, just out about lessons from the fall of the soviet union and he talks about how russia became a key factor in the fall of the soviet union when uh, Gorbachev undermined central government, elites in various national Soviet socialist republics from Ukraine to Armenia to Kazakhstan began building up their provincial institutions and they clamored for autonomy and independence. But there was one republic and one republic alone that was lacking in such institutions, Russia. So the Soviet state had been the Russian state. So as Gorbachev's programs began to bite and reforms began to work the ethnic Russians who constituted the Soviet majority sensed that they would need a state too if they wanted to avoid simply being looted among all the Gorbachevian upheaval. So ordinary citizens felt this. A surprising number of Russian intellectuals did as well. They made a choice between the crumbling Soviet monolith and the fledgling Russian nation. And we are in a similar dynamic right now in the United States and, and around the West. So... One of the central paradoxes of contemporary politics is that over-solicitousness towards minorities tends to strengthen majority identity and even to bring these majority identities into existence where they had never existed before. So Kamal Ataturk is styled the father of the Turks, not out of sentimentality, but because most people in that part of the world did not think of them as Turks in the early 20th century. So Turks came to realize that they were operating in a post-imperial world and that it was through ethnic identity that power would henceforth be exercised. People thought that uh, as the 2000s rolled along that ethnic identity, racial identity, and religious identity would have less power as the world became more secularized and liberalized. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. And you see this happening again and again and again. In 1949, India, their, their new constitution was built on the recognition of various castes and minorities. And so a previously undefined majority has in recent years rallied behind the majority Hindu party, right? This is what the elites condemn as Hindu nationalism. But that's what rules India now, Hindu nationalism. In the United States, citizens who do not enjoy special consideration from the government under the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its subsequent evolutions make up the core of Donald Trump's support. And because of that, they get condemned as white nationalists. In Britain, the Scottish, the Irish, and the Welsh get to vote and make their own laws, while English voters have no such prerogative. So you can just look at the Brexit referendum on leaving the European Union to see that question is still a live one. Brexit was soundly defeated in Scotland and Ireland, but it passed by a landslide in those parts of England outside of London. And leave voters in the United Kingdom were accused of English nationalism. Let's get a little more from Mishimer here. 14. But in the fall, in the fall of last year, 2021, it began to ramp up. And of course, early this year, and I'm talking about early 22, it became a full-blown crisis. And the question that we want to ask ourselves is what happened here? You know, why, why all of a sudden did this crisis go from the back burner to the front burner? 
And the answer is that the United States and its allies were effectively turning Ukraine into a de facto member of NATO. Uh, you'll hear lots of rhetoric today that the Russians really had nothing to worry about because nobody is talking about making Ukraine a member of NATO today. And I think that's true. Uh, but if you look at what we were actually doing, uh, it's a different story. First of all, going back to the Trump administration and continuing into the Biden administration, we are now arming Ukraine. We were not arming Ukraine during the Obama administration. In February 2014, when the crisis broke out. And, and let's say hello to Ricardo. Ricardo, long time no talk. How are you, man? Good. How are you? Good, man. What do you think about what's happening? Oh, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that a lot of this is the reaction to American aggression or expansion. Um, you know, I just, the thing I struggle with is like, yeah, I've come to not really like, you know, particularly the values that America goes around exporting to other countries and the ideological agenda and, and a lot of the rhetorical justifications for why they do things. But is it, you know, the nature, like, once they chose to do the empire thing in 1945, is it kind of like, if you're not growing, then you're just dying, you know? And so, the like, if they don't go into Ukraine, then, you, you, uh, in other words, like, they have no choice, you know? I mean, maybe yeah. we think they have a choice, but they just don't. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, there there are so many factors, but I, I mean, I, I think it's clear to me that America doesn't have any national security interest in who runs Ukraine. No, I completely agree. I mean, other than, I mean, there is, you know, there are issues of resource flows and um, controlling them and, you know, the, like this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, you know, if Germany got all of its energy from Russia, Germany would fall into the Russian sphere of influence and maybe America looks at, you know, Ukraine as necessary in, in order to like hold off a domino. Well, oh, come on, gosh, we're talking about domino theory. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that it's not a real justification, but I guess, you know, maybe they've never gotten over that. Uh, Kyle, what do you think about what's happening in the Ukraine? I think it was, it was a long time coming, but also, um, have to say that Ukrainian leadership is a factor here. Uh, the Ukrainian president has not done a very good job. And just broadly speaking, um, the background to all this is that Russia thought, well, Russia had the Minsk agreements, right? That was an agreement from Ukraine to federalize, meaning to give power to the, the regions yeah. so that Russia could have like a, a graduated buffer state where like the, the, the more eastern parts of Ukraine are kind of Russia aligned, the western parts are west aligned so it's not like uh it's not like nato is exactly right on on the furthermost uh you know frontiers of ukraine but instead it was more it was supposed to be more of a compromise but ukraine has just abrogated that compromise totally um and both ukraine and the west believe that there's that has no there's no legitimacy to this agreement signed with uh with putin um 
And, and in particular, this president has really kind of, he was elected kind of as, as a moderate, but he, he took a very hard nationalist turn, um, you know, kind of in a similar way to Trump, I think. Trump Trump was, was elected kind of to, to back away from, from, um, from foreign involvement, but he ended up being quite, quite a hawkish president. Uh, simply because of, of how uh, domestic affairs boxed him in. Um, I think that, I, I don't think Biden is to blame for this. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's not a very good situation at all. Uh, just like Afghanistan was not a good situation. There are no real good answers for America here. Um, maybe lean on Ukraine, but, uh, you know, lean on Ukraine to, to be con uh, conciliatory to the Russians, maybe, but uh, that that's a big ask. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, Kyle, does does America have any vital national security interests in Ukraine um, or Europe? It's a complicated question. The trend for the last several wars has been for the he who has the largest alliance to win. So all these people who say like, um, oh, you know, it, it, it's so cuck to be involved, you know, around the world. That's just utterly cuck. Nothing to do with national interest. Well, the fact is that it connects completely to the most pressing national interest, which is not not to be conquered. And the reality is that uh, for the last few wars, the side with the smaller alliance was conquered. So yes, there is a national interest in Europe, and there is a national interest in Ukraine. Um, but uh, you know, in this particular case, what we've done is we sort of made overtures to Ukraine that we're not willing to to to, to, uh, to to pay up on. And so we've kind of we've kind of uh, inspired Ukraine to 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 act in a way that will get it totally swallowed by Russia, which which is not good. Like in big invasions are, are not good for anybody. Like they're not good for everybody because that precedent means that you have to spend a lot more on on deterring it and it means that it's a lot more likely to happen in the future. Um, but it, I, I think it is a good move for Russia. It's just that it's bad for everybody else. I mean, I think I think the United States finds itself overextended. It, it is I, uh, to Kyle's point, it's not necessarily uh, Biden's fault. The the board has been set long before, but you know, it seems like the United States is in a situation of its rep. You know, its reputation with its allies is dependent on it you know, honoring its commitments and it is, you know, sort of incrementally um, entangled itself by making these promises. Um, you know, another thing uh, to the point about, you know, what's in America's interest in regards to maintaining the alliance, um, you know, Rome used to campaign every summer, every year, and they had to every year because they wanted to draw you know, they'll, their Latin allies um, into the field along with them so that they could never get restless and, and actually rebel. You know, it's hard for an alliance to break up when you're both, you know, engaged in, you know, uh, working closely together on the same side in, in an actual campaign. So it could just be a matter of like the American army basically has to be engaged everywhere in order to, you know, uh, prevent a realignment occurring. Well, I think what's important about, most important about this whole story is not Ukraine. It's like, where does Putin go next? Presumably if Putin takes over Ukraine and then takes some of the, the Baltic states, I mean, I think that's the the most 
that's the that's the thing that uh, captures my attention. If Putin comes to dominate Ukraine and that's it, then this story d- does not have compelling interest for me. It's where does Putin go next? I, I don't think anyone thinks that. Uh, Kyle, do you think that Putin would be content with simply swallowing Ukraine? I mean, it reminds me of of, um, of Hitler, frankly. Like, just in terms of, I'm not talking morally. I'm just talking in terms of. Um, Strategically, the way Hitler talked before he started the war and, and when he was halfway into the war was like, oh, I am I'm way too clever to get sucked into like a giant two front war. Like, I understand that trope. I am trope aware. I'm not going to I'm not going to get sucked into this. But the person it's kind of like like taking heroin, right? Like the person you become once you once you've had a great success invading another country is not the person that you were you know, when you were considering that that decision. Right. Right. It's, it's yeah it's that's that's one of the reasons why, why it's very bad for everybody else and why it would be better to have a, a, a solution where that didn't break the precedent that you don't have these, these very large conquests uh, one reason why i'd be particularly concerned is that i don't think i don't think that there's going to be like a long insurgency that that hurts russia um russia has a lot of advantages over over say like like america occupying occupying afghanistan like um their secret service, or, or yeah, their secret police know the language of the, of the people they're trying to trying to uh, catch. Uh, there's a lot more cultural commonality. Um, you know, it, it could be very successful, but but that only makes it more dangerous for everybody else besides Russia. And uh, Ricardo, surely it's not Ukraine in and of itself that is of particular interest to you. It's you know, what are the next dominoes to fall after the Ukraine? Well, I I don't really see. I mean, in a way, the Baltic states, um, Belarus. I mean, they're they're largely like still within the sphere of of uh, of Russia. They're not, you know, a Soviet republic. But um, I think Ukraine, the Ukraine government. I I don't know that Putin would necessarily take the western part. Um, Maybe it's just a matter of like getting a, a friendly regime there that gives him a buffer, um, which would seem pretty reasonable to me. I, you know, are they going back into Poland? I don't think that's a realistic possibility, um, especially with nuclear weapons. Like it's just well, if, that's if too far wants, outside the bounds. If he wants Poland, uh, I don't think NATO could stop him. I mean, short of nuclear weapons. Well, but I think they might be willing to, I think that, you know, because here's the thing. It's like when we say like America makes all these promises and commitments, but the current state of affairs are such that like they have blown their load in terms of their ability to convince the United, like the United States people to like mass support a war. You know, they did that with um, in Vietnam and then again in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so nobody's fighting for Ukraine. And if the mercenaries... If the mercenaries aren't enough, then then Ukraine is is going to fall to the Russians. And basically, Biden, I mean, you know, there was the confusion. I Who knows how much to read into this? But, you know, they're not uh, they don't want to call this an invasion um, or they're reticent to. And, and they basically have said, like, there, there's nothing. The United States is not going to respond in any meaningful way. And so. um. Uh, but I do think that Poland would be it would sort of draw very so heavily on like the World War II mythos 
and and that Americans and the West generally could, you know, find the will to like actually want to go to war over that. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. Uh, Kyle, any thoughts? Yeah, um, things become pretty unpredictable. I, I broadly agree with Ricardo. I think that um, probably Putin would, would leave a, a sliver of Ukraine, like, like the most hostile Western sliver of Ukraine, as like a rump state. And I also don't think that Putin would immediately embark on a you know really, really large uh, westward invasion. Um, but just the prospect of it would force a lot of um, a big shift of American troops into that area, and it would like uh, it would create the, more of a potential for, for misunderstanding. Yeah, it's just kind of it's a uh, it's it's like partly a, a return to the old uh, the old norm where, where we had this big eastern enemy, and uh, and we had to put a lot of national effort into into uh, deterring them. You know, America is also being drawn. They're the ones being drawn into the two front situation because anything that has to go into the Black Sea or, you know, Eastern Europe is not available in Southeast Asia. And and is, is China more likely to try to invade Taiwan if America is distracted by Europe? I think if Putin is successful, it's it's a big inducement. Like, uh, if, if if you're China, if you're, if you're a Chinese leader, you might think, "Am I going to squander one of the best chances that I have?" Considering that, you know, the uh, the Americans are so distracted and they seem so ir- irresolute. Um, on the other hand, maybe they're thinking, uh, you know, the West is going to decline and we're on the upswing, so we might as well wait. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's not clear. It's definitely it definitely would I think it would increase. Uh, the chances, not necessarily because America is distracted, but because it it's um, it demonstrates a precedent that you can you can get away with, with with this sort of thing. Well, that's true, but I'd say even in both on both counts, um, on both counts, uh, we find ourselves in a, in a in a dangerous situation. But I don't I don't know. It's like you know if. And I guess this is the fear, right? Like, this would be bad for us, would be if, well, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to make a conclusion about whether it'd be good or bad. But, you know, if Ukraine goes and then Taiwan goes and then Germany says, you know what, like, maybe we don't need to be, like, that tightly aligned with, you know, the United States and the United Kingdom. And um, not that they formally join, like, some new Warsaw Pact, but that Russian sphere, Russian and Chinese spheres of influence, like grow at the, and, and, and can, you know, and basically do fall like dominoes. I mean, domino theory in principle doesn't have to be wrong. It's just in its application during the cold war, it kind of, you know, didn't, uh, didn't live up to the promise. Uh, how how much of this do you think is Vladimir Putin wanting a legacy as opposed to what's really in Russia's best interests? Oh, Honestly, I think it is in their interest. Yeah, I think I think I think it is in their interest. You can go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, like, you know, like I, I've listened to some things on this, and they're like, "Oh, Putin's crazy! Like, this is crazy! Like, why would he do this?" And it's like, oh, what do you mean he got away with it? And honestly, did anybody think something else was gonna happen? I mean, in a lot of ways, he has the high. 
I mean, there's so much moral high ground in terms of, I mean, this is my next door neighbor. Americans have, you know, American politicians, elected officials in their words and actions have, you know, uh, you know, want to put their weapons on our doorstep. Um, you know, in these breakaway republics, you know, if if we care about democracy and self-determination, like there are Russian-speaking people in eastern Ukraine that want to be with Russia or at least uh, not, or, you know, or, or in a more favorable relationship to Russia being denied that. I mean, like, who's who's going to war over that? Like, what American soldier is, you know, willing to die for that? Nobody. Well, I mean, Biden is sending troops into uh, Poland. So we're sending more troops into Europe, which seems to be against our national best interest. Like it, it did seem for the, for the past five years that uh, NATO was going to wither away and die. And now we've got an increased economic and military commitment to an alliance, which may no longer be in our best interests. Any thoughts, Kyle? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of a very standard um like right-wing dissident take. But again, like the problem that I keep going back to is that the cold reality is that the, the, the countries with the largest alliances conquered the countries with the, with the smaller alliances. So, so like that, that just, that just breaks it down for me. Like, um, even when, when you look at, um, at like chips, chips are, are, are a big topic now, right? Um, so you have Taiwan semiconductors and, um, What's generally not understood is that Taiwan Semiconductors is kind of like a holding company. It, it's a company that coordinates a lot of resources from all around the world. Like their, their latest uh, extreme UV chips, uh, I, I believe there's like a very large European company that, that supplies the, the fundamental component, the fundamental like um, like UV uh, radiation source for that. And it's, and it's a giant, you know, billion, billions of dollar project. And, you know, it, it involves coordination across space and time with a huge amount of Europeans and a huge amount of, of Americans and a huge amount of European assets and a huge amount of American assets and all that. And, you know, it's, it's good to have the larger alliance in peace. And it's also good to have the larger alliance in war, right? It, it makes, it makes a lot of things way easier. A lot of, of German and Japanese activity was trying to get around the fundamental fact that the allies kind of had the world and the Germans and Japanese had to kind of work around them all the time. Like, yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. But well, but but when we say larger, I mean, we're talking about industrial pr- production, like war material, like ability to put soldiers on the ground, equipped. Um, and let's just presume. I mean, I mean, the big question mark is what does China do? Like, just is are are these are are Russia, China, and the United States like three independent actors without unwilling to coordinate their activities? Or like if Russia and China were united, I mean, the nuclear arsenal of the Russians, the industrial production of the Chinese, I mean, does the West, is the West even larger anymore? I mean, do they have, there's, I, I did, I don't know if either of you read the Richard Hanania piece about this, but him talking about, you know, relative birth rates and what that says about the willingness of people to like send their children to war. I mean, how, what kind of manpower can the West muster really uh kyle who are you paying attention to these days particularly with regard to what's going on in europe um who's a guy named michael kaufman i, I follow like a bunch of um these what's called os int 
accounts. Like a, it's like an open source intelligence movement. They they use like all kinds of data, and they give you updates. Not necessarily all that useful, um, but it's definitely fascinating to to see things in real time. There's, there's a huge amount of data available to to the um, to the layperson now. Um, hmm. But really, I don't know. Um, I, I've been listening to some Atlantic Council podcasts and some, uh, you know, some a lot of like uh, retired CIA people have have podcasts, and so I listen to them. Uh, not because I, I agree with all their perspectives, but because they seem like relatively well, well, well informed, and at least it tells you where the debate is. Um, yeah. But do I'll you like, think uh, yeah. do you think that they're the larger that the United States Empire is the largest the larger alliance? Uh, yes. Yes. Like fundamentally. Um, the U.S. plus EU plus um, I don't know Latin America, like it's it's well and, and, and Japan. Don't forget Japan. You know Korea. Uh, the, the thing is that it, it's both very large and also very geographically distributed, which matters, right? Like um, like a lot of the difficulties of of Japan well, and Germany related to geography as well as to, to well the, the geography is favorable, presuming that the United States is able to control the seas. You know, but with like these supersonic missiles, and there's only like ten aircraft carriers. Yeah, I mean it's way more than everybody else's, but I mean that's ten missiles. I think the fundamental problem is that, um, like nowadays, I think that the real action is is under the sea, not 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 the aircraft carriers, and uh, it's a lot easier to kill than to protect, right? Like, um, it took a, it, it it took a bigger investment. From the Allies to, to, to stop the U-boat threat, than it took the Germans to to create the U-boats, and we're yeah. kind of in, in, in the yes. super U-boat era. So if China has to be maybe like three times as strong as America to stop America from just sinking all their all uh, sinking their their trade routes, and they rely on trade routes more than more than we do. No, they rely on my, trade routes than we do. No, no, no. I understand, but my point is that you know at least what you what I've heard or you know, the fear mongering about supersonic missiles developed by the Russians is that these carriers, I mean, it's, they're no longer able to project that kind of power because they are, you you talk about attack and defense. It just takes 12 of these missiles to take out multi-billion dollar, you know, plane, you know, aircraft carriers. Right. Like I read that article with, with uh, Hanania and Sue, um, I think broadly it's wrong because, uh, like the, these are these are basically a, a a fancy fancy ballistic missile, right? Like they're they're basically yeah. ballistic missiles, except that they do more maneuvering and they have like a much longer glide phase. Yeah. Um, and you know, basically everything you could do with them, you could do with ballistic missiles. Only the ballistic missiles are faster, but also easier to intercept. But do we have the, the capacity to stop? Um, you know, a bunch of ICBM class missiles targeted on a carrier. Mm. I'm not sure we do. Yeah. So I, I don't think that it changes that much. But, like I, but, but so then if you're not able to basically park your bombing, uh, your bombers off the coast of Shanghai and, and hit their factories, then they're going to grind you up in their ability to produce and arm hordes. <clears throat> and maybe it's not that they're able to then mount their own 
invasion on United States soil, but that Eurasia is no longer. If the U.S. doesn't, it can't guarantee the seas, then what is the point of the United States from the point of view of the EU? Well, China, China creates a lot of hostility to, uh, to itself. Like uh, as uncharismatic as the latest woke Americans are, the Chinese somehow managed to be less charismatic than that. Um, so like kind of the purpose of the U.S. would be uh, from the perspective of random countries around the world would be to try to hedge against China. Um, and like, if, if you add up, like you add up EU plus US plus Japan, you know, that's, that's already bigger than, bigger than China, like, yeah. Or, or, or yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's well, true. Well, not, not in terms of people. You would need, you would, well, but even industrial production. Yeah. I think it's bigger. China, than China has the factories. Yeah, but they're like you 77th know. in per capita income. I mean, they're not, they're yeah, a but third income, world country. Well, but they are. You, the United States was not wealthier per capita than Europe at the time of the World Wars. But yes, it was. Like, the, the United States became the world's richest country per capita in the 1880s. What did it? Oh, okay. All right. Well, I stand corrected on that point, but I guess it doesn't change the fact that the United States income now is like so largely based on services and sort of like the legacy of their, their control, you know, their control of the money supply that, you know, I don't think they can churn out, you know, the tanks. I partly agree and I partly don't. And, and here's where I partly don't, right? The best Chinese AI researchers, where are they? They're America. all working here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, the wealth of So we're America, just going to drone them to death. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess that's it, right? In, in large part, yeah. We don't have to put troops on Taiwan to defend Taiwan. We can use, we can use technology to send missiles and, and bombs. We don't have to put people in the way because our technology is so much better than China's. Kyle, what were you saying? Taiwan is a, is a difficult one because it's so close to China. But but yeah, like the the broader point, um, yeah, like. The wealth of the West is not illusory. This is this is like an intuition that, that you get from studying economics, um, and it like it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're you're being too confident or whatever. But the reality is that you know GDP actually does matter. It, it re represents even if it's it's uh, it's quote unquote fake or misleading in some ways. It ends up being being more relevant than you think in others. And so like the reality is that. Chinese elites, especially the, the very, very top intellectual elites, they want to have their children educated here. They want to be able to, to, to come here. And that really matters, right? Um, and China can, can stop this. China can obviously stop people from emigrating the same way that the Soviets stop people from emigrating. But, but uh, that creates like morale problems and, and coordination problems and all of that. Um, like the fact that, that real estate in the US is so expensive reflects in a way the fact that it's the world's premier destination for, for, for people, people who have the power and the wealth to choose wherever they want to go. Um, you know, the, the U.S. and 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 uh, allied countries, you know, very analogous countries like New Zealand and Canada and stuff like that, uh, you know, sweep up the lion's share of those. Um, well, I think it's been true. That's that has been true. Uh, but what I would say is that what you 
Ukraine may, you know, sort of, listen, COVID, the election uh, of 2020, like they're the, the, reaction to Donald Trump in 2016. These are these moments where like the mass drops from the regime and, you know, Ukraine lays bare the fact that the United States is not in a position to basically defend it, defend the periphery of its empire. And once that periphery, that edge is challenged, like you don't quite know like what kind of momentum will come off of that. And what I'm saying is that dry, you know, China and Russia together, which they never have seemed to manage to like truly unite. I mean, like, because they are different civilizations and they don't have all the same interests and, and maybe that's a key weakness of theirs, but it would seem to me that they ought that China at a minimum could take Taiwan with no serious response. I don't think America would send maybe more than drones in support, but like once Taipei is taken, they're done. There's no, you know, D-Day invasion coming from the United States to, to protect Taiwan. Right, but like, um, is China, like, uh, China is not more pleasant than the U.S. when it comes to COVID, right? So like all these sort of things that, that, that America is doing that are maybe missteps in terms of overreacting to COVID, um, there, there are things that are echoed, you know, tenfold in China and, you know, it, and, and they're also echoed in Europe and they're, and they're also, you know, there's, there's not a place that really comes off looking much better than, than America out of this catastrophe. It's, it, it, it sort of degrades the quality of life everywhere, but it's not like, you know, oh, there are no uh, COVID restrictions in South, in South Africa. I don't know if that's true. Or, or, uh, or Korea, Kenya, Japan. Or yeah, yeah you, you're not going to go there. Like the places that don't have any restrictions um, relative to America have other problems that are worse. And the places that, that, that are, um, you know, doing better in terms of COVID numbers are more restricted, like like China, Japan, East Asia, more broadly. But I don't mean necessarily it's about their response per se. It's that there are these issues that if um, like... Of social trust and social cohesion, I think that's yeah, what you're they, talking they, about. Yeah, it's dramatically changed the perception of the regime. It's not this thing that, you know, I see the flat, like, I mean, I'm a guy that I stop, like, National Anthem, I stop wherever I am. I mean, it's hat off, hand, you know, on the heart, face the flag. Like, I stood the, I said the Pledge of Allegiance proudly every day in school, like, and now I see those things as like, they, they kind of disgust me and it sort of upsets me that I ever like saw it as, it's like not, the American government is not representative of the American people. And therefore like it has its mercenary forces, you know, that it uses to do these operations in the Middle East and, and it has its weapon, you know, it has its technology, but it does not have the soldiers. It does not have the ability to mobilize the United States people. Uh, um, to, you know, South Korea, I don't think Americans are going back for Korea. And if Japan was to fall into the hands of the United, uh, uh, like, or fall into the sphere of influence of China, uh, who's going to go to war over that? Are we really, I mean, without like some, I'm not going to say false flag, but some sort of 
like direct provocation against, you know, the American people. Um, I, I think like the will of the, the ability of the United States to project power is way more fragile than it has seemed in the recent past. Like in the past 20 years, like since, since the end of the Cold War. Right. You're talking about the steadily dropping social trust and social cohesion. Yeah, the, which undermines the ability to make war. And, and so, uh, mm-hmm. anyway. And, and Kyle, do you think that we've uh, experienced steadily dropping social trust and social cohesion, which uh, makes this country weaker? Yes. Um, no doubt of that. I mean, when you see but, countries but, but like Northeast really... Asia and how they react to COVID by, you know, pulling together and being individually responsible, it's such a dramatic contrast to Western individualism. Sorry, Kyle, back to you. Yeah, definitely true. Uh, but, like, it, it's a very broad story, right? Like, uh, you saw a whole lot of East Asian countries do really fantastically in terms of their, not, their, 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 their death numbers. And you also saw, like, pretty consistent results across the entire West. So we can't blame anything recent for this. It's, it's a much bigger story than anything that's happened. And, you know, it, it, it's a story of two civilizations, really. Like it's a you know, divergence going back many thousands of years. It's not, it's not like, uh, you know, the latest polarization numbers caused this. Uh, this difference. Um, no, I, I'm just saying that we, within, within the context of, you know, like uh, this 50 year period, there's just been a steady, and it did, like you said, it, it didn't happen with COVID. It, this is the latest instance of the breakdown, um, the breakdown of, of trust in the government, like the identity, the, the social cohesion in the American people, and and willingness to you know engage in warfare that's not like absolute deemed sort of absolutely necessary, like a, an assault on us, you know, which. So I just think that I think that the American appetite to go defend much outside the, you know, they would probably defend Western Europe and that's about it. And Poland. Yeah, I'm not sure that we'd put troops on the ground in Western Europe. Let's say Putin just keeps swallowing countries. I don't think we'd put troops on the ground to get into a ground war with Putin. Uh, Kyle, what do you think? But we're definitely putting more troops into the Baltic states and in, into Poland, and um, and invasion of Ukraine will definitely accelerate that. I don't think we're willing to cede NATO allies. That would be, you know, a step too far. If he attacks a NATO country, we're going to fight. Not necessarily nuke him, but we we are going to fight on the ground if he attacks a NATO country for sure. Um, it may be like a what do you call it, like a sort of perfunctory affair, um, but we will fight. And in terms of like uh, the broader thing, like uh, none of these social cohesion issues really strike at the heart of some Chinese intellectual luminary who wants to come to the United States. And I'm going to keep on harping on this because, you know, it looks like um, it looks like the future is going to be pretty dominated by by you know overperformers. Maybe that's maybe that's just like tomorrow is like yesterday. I mean. No, the top 5% are dominant for the top 5% cognitively are dominant for a society. And we are particularly blessed with our top 5%. Being able to hoover up the, the top Chinese talent yeah. is, is important. Um, even if it, it's not a lot numerically, it still matters. Yeah. But how do you know that they're really with you? 
and not just colonists. Like, they still retain a Chinese identity. And, I mean, I'm not saying you round them all up or anything like that, but the, the idea is, like, when push comes to shove, they may just come, you know, they're here, they're here, and, and totally, if necessary, willing to go back and take what they've learned back there. Well, you'd think they'd act on their self-interest and they have a 100 times better life here than they could ever have there. But see, is that even true? Like, China's that horrible? I mean, is that yes. really... Yes, yes. I mean, the, the pollution is, is horrible. The, the repression is, is horrible. It's, uh, it's a really grotty place to live. I think, um, like, obviously, they're going to be spies for the CCP. Like, that's so, so. Broadly Not speaking, all. if you allow, if you were to have, okay, so when Japan declared war on us, we did not say it would be super racist to uh, isolate Japanese Americans from important secrets, right? And if we had taken that approach, then the Japanese would have, for sure, uh, discovered you know, our code breaking and, and all that. But the thing is that we're not very good at keeping secrets anyway. Um, you know, the Russians got got basically everything, especially the most important things. We're just not, not very good at keeping secrets at all. So um, the fact that we have all these spies in our midst is not, it's not really that big an issue by virtue of us just being so horrible at, at Operation Security anyway. Well, well, because we're so bad at keeping foreigners out. I mean... It's like there are no stand like well we can't keep Russians out you know so I mean it's like it's sort of one leads to the other yeah but there's also like a I don't know um, there's a lot of reasons Americans have for for defecting like Snowden is that the latest example um, and it's sort of representative of how Americans have like a lot of individualistic ideas. And, you know, when you have people... With well, 100%. So we always assume that, like, well, we can't judge him just because he's a foreigner, you know? And, right. and well, so they, right, foreign. they're collective. They're like, well, no, I'm Russian. Like, I have a duty to my people. Or I'm an Israeli. Or I am a Japanese or Chinese. The Russians and the Chinese are more willing to take the, the necessary steps to... To, uh, to secure their information, right? And those steps are, are fairly harsh, and I'm not even sure that it's that it's necessarily worth it. I mean, uh, we can survive not having great operational security. Um, there are other problems besides does the enemy have spies in, in your midst? It's an important problem to be sure, but frankly, it's not an area where America has ever been particularly good, and America has done, done fairly well because of its other strength. So, and, and in terms of like... Uh, are, are, are their hearts in the right place? The fact is that if you're doing work in America, you can't be doing work in China at the same time. You can't be doing full-time work, full-time involved work in China at the same time. So we're just taking their time regardless of, of where their hearts are. Uh, Ricardo, what do you think about the Canadian trucker uh, convoy and crackdown by the Canadian it's, government? It's, it's wild that I don't understand the Canadian mindset. Like, are they just all like progressive cat ladies it's like is that the whole electorate you know like i don't understand 
him in power and like I just can't understand these like Arctic Circle countries and they're all female leadership. I just don't get it. Like you look at like the Finns or the Swedes and stuff, and it's like it's all women all the way down. And it's like, how did this happen? And it's anyway. the absence of like, diversity, unironically. What do you mean, Kyle? Like uh, the presence of uh, of the wonderfully diverse and vibrant POCs has uh, created in Americans a much more hard-edged, realistic view of the world. Dude, that's a fire take. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I like. I mean, it's yeah. Like you have to express in, in a competitive environment. You there's more testosterone flowing. Yeah, a lot more crime. A lot less social trust. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's kind of like America is a little bit Russified. America doesn't go as far as Russia, but, like, yeah. Russia is, is, like, very hard-edged, very massive. They're frontier, like, they're frontier yeah. places. Yeah, and, and, like, because of communism and other things, they have very, very low social trust. And, uh, yeah, it's, very, it's a much, much more masculinized uh, place. Whereas, whereas the very high social trust, idyllic, uh, homogenous. Yeah, well, they are. Pa- these are paradises, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and what kind of person does that create? Like, it, apparently, apparently, <laughs> it creates uh, uh, Sweden. Yes, right. Which is kind of darkly funny. I don't know. So the the Canadian truckers were essentially challenging the authority of the state. They, they were trying to shut down the state. And so <clears throat> I don't have any problem with what Trudeau, Trudeau or whatever a state does to try to put back anyone who's rebelling against the authority of the state. When you take on the authority of the state, I expect the state to hit back hard. Uh, Ricardo, any thoughts about how hard uh, the Trudeau administration is hitting back? I mean, it's it's just... I guess there are things about the United States that I complain about, but we really do have a lot of protections, like all the layers. Like it is very hard for them. Like the U.S. president just could not do that. I mean, even the lockdowns and stuff, like we're all enacted by the governors. I mean, there was sort of a a group think psychosis, in my opinion, that like led to them all reaching these conclusions. Um, but at the same like at the same time like i don't i don't have there is no way that a canadian style or even like you know new york city la san francisco style response to covid would ever happen here it's just it's a completely different place you know it's a it's functionally a different country and uh so it's hard to relate it's kind of it's scary to think of I mean, we'll just yank your bank account. Like we're monitoring social media and it's like the banks are empowered to do it um, just with no legal repercussions. It's um, over some I probably trucks. disagree with Luke about like this and a lot of other right populist things. Um, like I, I think that broadly speaking, while it may be an individual mistake to protest the government, even in like the way the truckers did or the January 6th people did. Uh, it's not like bad for the right as a whole. And, it's, and it's, it's admirable. Like I would not march into the Capitol, but I admire, I'm glad that there are people who, who would do yes. that. Yes, yes. Um, and it's like, it, it really disgusts the educated elite of this country a lot. But like the way things are breaking down is you're seeing an electoral division between the educated and the uneducated. 
And, uh, you know, that doesn't work out well for the Democrats, actually. It works out very badly. The, uh, the smart Democratic a- analysts are very afraid of this, uh, of this new electoral division. No, I think, I think you're right that we need, yeah, like, it's not, I'm not going to be the one, the fool in the street doing street activism, but these events, like even like the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting, I mean, these are morale boosters. And January 6th was like, it's not a morale booster per se, but I would say that it made a lot of people just like, will be permanently seething and permanently, you know, and it's the same thing with the truckers. Like the, the Canadian government has made themselves like the permanent enemy of like every single person that uh, sympathized with it, with that. And enough of that happens. And then there's just, it, it, it's bad news or, or there, or political change might start to occur. And do you, either of you think we're going to have a trucker style convoy movement in the United States? It's a different situation, right? There's not the, uh, not, not, there's not the recent mandate coming down from, 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 a, from a giant federal government. that doesn't even exist to the, to the extent that it exists in Canada. Here. Yeah. And, and it, it, or like Austria, I mean, they're not mandating, you know, like the OSHA thing got shut down. Now there are some individual companies that are doing it and only a few states have basically outlawed co- uh, companies from, um, require, you know, being able to require vaccination. Um, but they, so yeah, we don't, we haven't been subjected to that. So I don't think there's reason like to me, I, I, I guess like, look in, in the red states, COVID is over. I mean, it's truly over. You know, the, the school guidance, it's, it's back to sort of normalcy. It's like your kid has a fever, don't send him to school. Okay, his fever's over, he's fine. Which is how it's always been, right? And uh, Kyle, what do you think about vaccine mandates such as the Biden administration tried to enforce? I think the vaccines are, are great. I think they're a tremendous triumph of, of science and, uh, and of the country, frankly. Um, I, I'm with Trump. I'm with Trump on the vaccines, but uh, mandating, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's uh, like, like it, it may be good policy in like a very narrow, narrow view of the world sense, but like um, I'm leaning into this whole education polarization thing in a sense. I, I think that I may not agree with the exact way that the, uh, the uneducated resistance, you might call it, to the, to the woke are, are pushing. In particular, I, I disagree with them on COVID in like a lot of ways, but the, the underlying principle is enough to make it so that, so that I'll support them, right? Like it's kind of autistic to be like, oh well, well you're wrong about about this this very specific thing, so I'm going to 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 uh, totally disavow you. What do you mean? That. It's the lot. No, it's the dishonesty. It's it's the demonstrated willingness to lie, self-aware. Like it's it's. I'm deceiving you because I think I know better than you. So it's like, hold on. So what you what you're saying is, and this extends to the climate agenda, so many other issues where it's like you you you're admittedly willing to obs- uh, misrepresent or deceive regarding data. Like we can't even agree about the facts because you know you're you don't care about the data. Like you have a narrative and you're committed to it. 
no matter the reality. And that's what COVID is because yes, it was an illness. People got sick and died. It killed a lot of people. How do you respond to it? Well, the, the, the fact that it was largely an illness of those with pre-existing conditions, those who were old, those who were generally subject to these kind of illnesses, um, you, the, the, uh, you know, instead of targeting the response towards them, they just pretended like it affects five-year-olds. And, and then you're, you're putting out this vaccine technology that is, it, I'm not saying that there are long-term effects, but you don't have enough time to even answer that question. And so what you're doing is you're, you, they've created a, a narrative where you have to mandate that five-year-olds take experimental uh, therapies with completely unknown long-term or even medium-term consequences and, and compare that to the risk the, uh, that the disease offers them, which is nothing. I mean, it's nothing. No, there's no dead five-year-olds from coronavirus. Right. I mean, what I'll say is that I, I disagree entirely with a right-wing view of COVID. Like, um, and it's, it's to the extent that, that like, it probably isn't even that useful to debate it. I also disagree entirely with the right-wing view on, on the election and whether it was stolen and all that. But the fact is that my disagreement on those points um, still leaves me in a position where I disagree with the woke way more. And I'm willing to just ignore those, those disagreements uh, because I, I don't think it's, it's worth it. Like, and, and I'll, I'll say something else, right? About January 6th and about like right-wing populism. I think that the really destructive right-wing populism is like, uh, you know, stuff like Charlottesville. And I'm not even talking about the, the rally. I'm talking about the guy driving into the, into the crowd. Um, you know, violence. You know, reprehensible, but also like just disgusting and alienating violence is the problem with with uh, with right wing populism. And if that's not there, then I think that essentially every every kind of right wing populist uh, agitation that does not involve killing people should be applauded. That's that's sort of sort of my my flag on the ground. I'm in favor of every kind of right wing populism that, that is not literally murderous. That is the extent to which I disagree with, with, with the with the uh, woke leadership of, of the United States. Wow. <laughs> so, like, you support the truckers. Even, yeah. Even, um, I mean, January, I mean, they had to lie about the violence of January 6th. Yeah, they, they said that the, the cops were killed. In fact, no cops were killed. The only person who was killed was, a, un, was an unarmed uh, protester. And Woman. it's kind of hilarious that, that, that they're like, oh, uh, yeah, like the whole context of of BLM and like you can't shoot unarmed people. This is like an unarmed, you know, five foot nothing woman being shot. Yeah. Like Yeah, but the thing is there's so many people in this country now that understand and see through the lies though. Like they see January sixth and they know that Ashley Babbitt is the only person that was killed. They know. And like we who knows about the election being stolen? I'll tell you this. In a way like whether they actually stuffed ballots in Atlanta or not is really immaterial to the fact that they steal elections with their open borders. They steal elections with their like denial 
of voter ID. They steal elections with the lies and manipulation that comes through the TV. Okay, like the the election is already stolen before the votes are even counted by like just just the man- manipulation of democracy. So yeah, but what I would say is that they, they steal elections by, by by lying that that police are murdering black people and that we're, we're in this we're in this. Uh, oh yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, like all. Yeah, I I actually agree with them about the about the. Like about the fact of the voter ID and the and, and the mail-in voting, I don't think the voter ID and mail-in voting in fact imperil democracy at all. Um, like or, or the absence of voter ID. Like like uh, the reality is, you know, there are these cases where people try to test the system and they like go and vote in two places, and then people count the votes. They notice that someone voted in two places and they go to jail immediately. Like there are other ways besides voter ID to secure elections and to detect whether people who are not supposed to vote are voting. Um, and I'm just not. I don't buy the right-wing narrative that, that that's that that's a problem, but but like the bigger issue is that the entire perspective of the American people on what's happening in America is utterly warped by a class of educated of, of like the educated managerial class, which has an ideology, a specific ideology that that says that this this is a white supremacist state and says that capitalism is evil and says all these different things that are that are totally crazy and is essentially revolted with everything that's virtuous. They're revolted by by patriots who, who join the military. If, if they see a trucker, they want to throw up. If they, see, if they see a truck or smell a truck, they want to throw up. They're basically a class of people who are disgusted with everything that's, 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 that's exactly virtuous and that could actually move the country in, in a good direction. So Yeah, they're, ba- they're Canadians. Yeah. They're basically Canadians. <laughs> not, not the trucker Canadians, but... Any... No, but I mean, you know, I mean, it's the same, it's the same Trudeau energy. Tyler Cowen said recently about the truckers, he said, you want to be on the side of the educated people in general, right? And, and he said, you know, whenever there are uneducated people behind something, you can run away um, and all that. And, you know, someone on the on the blog commented, oh, how about these, these Black Lives Matter idiots who are running around breaking things and smashing things? Like, you wrote an article, Tyler Cowen wrote, wrote an article saying that wokeness is actually a good thing because despite all its flaws, it's a new ideology for the whole West to, to adopt. Right, like, I don't know. There's just tremendous corruption among even the more reasonable types who 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 are are, are absorbed by what you might call the uh, the ideological blob of the educated American elite. And uh, you know, it's really really bad. This stuff is really really bad. We it it relies on fundamentally misreading or or lying, fundamentally lying about everything that happens in this country like it, it mischaracterizes everything that happens in this country it makes the villains into heroes and the heroes into villains um it's, yeah are there any uh, kyle any politicians that you like these days i mean i i like the i, I like trump i like the trumpists um i like mitch mcconnell mitch mcconnell is not a trumpist mitch, mitch mcconnell is a is a kind of traditional republican politician but Mitch McConnell is responsible for a lot of, of our successes, for, for a lot of Republican victories, right? Mitch McConnell is why we have such a majority on the Supreme Court, um, and he's managed to hold the, the Republican Senate together, the, the Republican part of the Senate together. You know, in, in the House, you've had um, recriminations. It, it is true. Yeah. Well, uh, it's true in particular. The Republicans always deal with these, like, moderate, you know, in order to get to 50, you're basically 
counting the Susan Collins of the world. And those right. are very hard votes to, to hold, you know, keep in the fold. And like, if you imagine what happened to Liz Cheney happening to one of the crucial Republicans in the Senate, like it's very good that McConnell managed to avert that. He's like a really good strategist, a really good operator. I like him. Um, I like Republicans in, in general, I suppose. I mean, even the more pragmatic ones are at least uh, holding holding the Democrats at bay. Um, and what about Glenn Youngkin? I'm skeptical of the Teal. Like, like the, the Teal folks, the, uh, the Blake Masters, the J.D. Vance, I don't know. Um, I prefer Mandel to Vance, for example. Right. Um, Vance. Who's Mandel? Uh, Josh Mandel. He's the he's the he's the guy who's going to win the race, I believe. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not I'm not particularly sold on these like very online Senate candidates. You know, they or, or congressional candidates. They lose their election, and then they. I don't know. They all have this way of like going the full. Gosh, what was his name? Um, Oh, what was the name from Wisconsin? The guy. Okay. He's been on this show. Oh, the sheriff. Um, oh, wait, not the black sheriff. No, no, no. The white guy that ran against Paul Ryan. Um, oh, yeah. Paul yeah. Nealon. Paul yeah, Nealon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all, yeah. like, I don't know. They just, I've seen a few of them. I, I can't think of them off the top of my head. Uh, Pete D'Ambrosa or something. It's like, they're, they're a stone's throw from going the full Nealon. Uh, what uh, about Glenn Youngkin, the Republican who won the governor's race in Virginia? He he seemed to run a very savvy campaign. Uh, um, perhaps yeah, he's showing. He won. He won in a in a uh, you know less than red state, right? Yeah, so, in, in a purple, blue, maybe even blue state. I like winners. I like people who win their elections. <laughs> <laughs> but but Trump losing, unironically, Trump losing is 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 his best move, right? Uh, his like it's the luckiest thing ever that he doesn't have to deal with all this crap that Biden is now dealing with. Um, like this is just a like yeah, a lot of this is the aftershocks of COVID. Like a lot, a lot of this inflation, as I said in the chat, is a global phenomenon that you're not going to be able to avoid no matter what country you are. And so like, inflation is is the most unpopular thing. It's like more unpopular than syphilis. So, uh, yeah, like this is really bad for for Biden, and it's good that we don't have our guy in charge while this while the shit goes down well i do wish that i just wish trump was younger i wish he had the opportunity to basically go the full putin himself which is to basically you know be such a smooth political operator that he could you know by unofficial means like everything flows through him i'm not sure about that i wouldn't like a smooth trump because i think a smooth trump might be able to, to bring along the left and the only reason why the Trump, Trump is so stalwartly right wing is that he keeps on making the left apoplectically mad, right? Like he he tries he tries to betray the right for the left, but the left will never take him because he keeps on uh, stomping on their feet inadvertently, no matter what, no matter what he does. Like he's he's so much of a boomer, he's so, he, he's so politically unaware and uh, you know ham ham handed that he can never he can never moderate because he'll never be accepted by the other side. But if he could moderate, I am 100% sure that, that he would. He's not like, uh, he doesn't have like, like an ideological commitment to the right at all. Like he doesn't have an ideological commitment to anything really. He, he's fundamentally a New York Democrat who decided to, to run for the Republican. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm personally, I, I don't think, I don't think he wins again. 
I mean, I think he's he's probably, you know, I read some of those statements he puts out, and it's just like the man is almost like a lit. Like it's like did he type this out on his phone? <laughs> what I'm hearing about him since the beginning, though, this is like literally what I've been hearing about him since the beginning from like very right wing people who who kind of love the Trump direction, like like. But I love. But see, all screaming. Yeah, but I love him. But I, I was never, I was never like one of those like, well, you know, he's kind of uncouth. Like, okay, no, I loved him, and I loved the crudeness and the directness, but it was like more coherent. I mean, if that makes, I'm not I sure guess it really my was. point is, I mean, whatever you might be looking at him with through rose tinted glasses. I think the, the the Trump of 2016 was pretty incoherent and said a lot of a lot of crazy shit. Well, no, they were co- it, it was incoherence and crazy are two different things. Like. I don't, I think he was coherent and I can understand why he would appear crazy because no politician would dare say the things that he said. But I, my point is, is like his takedowns, his takedowns are just even ramblier. Like he needed Twitter to like tighten it up. You know what I mean? To, to be a little punchier and uh, he's not good in paragraph format. Well, who's his opponent? Is it is it Biden or Kamala? Because either one is very very bad. I think his issue is the primary. I think any Republican. Oh really? No, no. He's he's gonna crush the primary if he if he tries. Unless he has a health problem. But see, what's his name? No, but but the guy in Florida is like Ron DeSantis. Yeah, DeSantis has gotten his way. I mean, DeSantis has like demonstrated the ability to like, you know, I mean because. Florida is purplish. I mean, maybe it's redder than it is blue, but at the same time, like, there's plenty of blue there. And his ability to basically, you know, Texas it up is uh, encouraging. He's just not Trump. He's not, he doesn't have that Trump spice, you know. And the the, the base knows Trump better than they know him. So Trump will win the primary. If, if he doesn't have, like, a like like a stumble, you know, he's, he is very old. He could he could have have like a big, big uh, sunset moment, sundowner moment, but uh, barring that, I think he's gonna. He's well, gonna to your point though, is it Biden or Kamala? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think he's he 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 could crush Biden without even looking old because it's by comparison. But yeah. a younger Kamala is not going to be the nominee. Well, who? I don't know, but it won't be. It'll be the homosexual probably. Not that probably. much time for the Democrats to totally reorient. Like the vice president and the president sucks so much oxygen out of out of the room. It's crazy. It's very hard for someone who's not either of those things to just come up and actually win, right? Is AOC has, old enough? Is AOC Biden old enough? Biden hasn't even decided if he's if he's uh, if, he, if he's running probably, and he's probably not going to. If the moment that he announces he's not running, is going to be the worst day of his life because everybody's going to just forget about him and treat him like he's shit, right? So he's he's going to delay that decision as long as he can, and maybe even delay think, you know considering it. As long as you can, and maybe just kind of fall into the nomination naturally, you know. Um, how old is AOC? AOC? AOC has no chance, obviously. Um, she's thirty-two, and so she she can't even. But yeah, like an AOC type can't just rise up that meteorically that fast, in my opinion. It would have to be like like a Trump style thing. But like the thing is that Democrats are the educated party, and the educated party doesn't do Trump style things. Elliot Blatt, what's on your mind this evening? Elliot, speak, man. Okay. (laughs) 
So I'm glad I'm not in Europe, man, because they've got a severe energy problem, which is just going to be horrendous without yeah. without Russia. I mean, they're going to have massive inflation. Their their energy prices are off the hook. They're still going to take Russian gas. They just stopped the pipeline, which was not even operating. They're still going to take Russian gas. <laughs> they're just going to take it in in in, in boats, like they have these huge uh, LNG shippers. Uh, you know, Russia like stacked a bunch of them off the coast because they knew that the pipeline was going to be delayed again. Um, so yeah, like, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's going to be bad, but they're not going to stop buying Russian gas. So. Well, well, they they put a halt to the the pipeline. So right, but mean... the pipeline exactly zero amount zero gas had gotten through that pipeline. It was not a completed pipeline. It was not something that that, that had ever been affecting European energy at all. It's just something that they w- it would have improved the situation if it if it was completed, but it never has been completed. So it's not like canceling it makes the situation worse. Really, it makes it worse than it would be. It, it, it stops an improvement from happening, but it's not like it, it, it's cutting off the existing supply. Uh, one thing that this uh, Putin invasion of Ukraine is doing is just another another blow to globalism. I mean, the, the world is becoming steadily less global, more autarkic, more more self sufficient, more more nationalist. I don't know about that. I mean, we're we're still buying all this crap from China. Like the, this supply thing, the story of the supply thing, people get this so wrong. Like fundamentally, the reason why our ports are so screwed up is that we're trying to put way more stuff through them. And what is that stuff? It's stuff we're buying from abroad. So this is not like a deglobalization story. Like we have deglobalization aspirations, but fundamentally it's a story of us just buying more and more shit from abroad. And that's why it's so expensive. Like, uh, it's 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 a motivation to maybe reshore things, but fundamentally, uh, you know, we have this direction we want to go in. We're we're more autarkic, <laughs> and but, but like think about what we're actually doing. What we're actually doing is working as hard as we can to de-block the ports and make them bigger and make them better, which is only going to to make it to, to give the advantage more to, to foreigners, right? And we're still buying all that shit. We're still buying enough to actually overwhelm our previous infrastructure, which was already massive, mighty infrastructure to bring as much crap into the U.S. as possible. So, you know, deglobalization, it's not happening, right? The opposite is happening. But maybe it will happen, but it's not happening. Well, well, COVID was just another thing that showed how how countries need to be more self-sufficient than they were. They need to have their own personal protective equipment. They need to have... You know, many more supplies that they used to depend on a a globalized uh, trade market, and so people are seeing now with with the Ukraine situation that uh, Europe is going through an awful energy crisis. I mean, their energy prices are just skyrocketing, and uh, I guess places like China and, and Japan they have to import energy. They just have no way um, around that. Uh, currently, maybe maybe all this will lead uh, Japan to take back some of the islands that that Russia took after World War II, because uh, Japan can get energy from some of those islands. They they pump a great deal of natural gas. So this this might be a good time while Russia is distracted for for Japan to start taking back their islands. Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yes, speak up. Okay, all right. So right off the gate. I don't know anything about this. You know, my opinion is utterly worthless. Uh, so just be advised about this. So, uh, <clears throat> but one thing it has done, which 
we have we you know we have to thank Putin for us. He's he's really brought the brought the gang back together. We've got yes. multi multi speaker live streams now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How, when was the last time we had a multi speaker live stream? <laughs> Every year, right? Yes. Yeah, probably has been. Yeah. No, you know, I, I guess I've been really blasé about this. I, I just don't see it. That, I don't see it as being the hugest deal. I mean, the play, I, you know, what it does say, it's kind of funny that it happened more or less in tandem with Trudeau, is that um, <clears throat> it's been sort of two open acts of defiance to the current order. So, tr- you know, Trudeau has been defied and now Biden has been defied. And it sort of does signal sort of a shift in, uh, where the United States stands, but as to where it goes, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess, you know, I, it just didn't feel like the big earth-shaking event that everyone else seems to think it is. Now, am I just being naive? Well, it, it is a big deal if if uh, Russia takes control of Ukraine, because since World War II, uh, changing national boundaries has has not happened very much. Right. Okay. But that's more or less symbolic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to what extent are we really dependent on Ukraine, right? I would not. Yeah. So, but, and, you know, Putin did make a case. I have to say, every time I've, you know, I've, I've written very few Putin interviews, but he's definitely on the ball as a leader. You know, you get no doubt. I've seen him, like, there's video out there of uh, Putin conducting himself in a cabinet meeting and basically upbraiding people for not performing well. I mean, really like yeah. being a leader in a real way, in a real old school kind of way that you can't even imagine Biden doing. So, I know. It's like, I wish we could hire him. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. The mainstream media have all these articles about how Putin is growing paranoid and out of touch. And, yeah. and all the dissidents that I talk to think that uh, Putin is very much in touch. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, it's going to be, you know, I think people are freaking out is because people have seen an example of leadership. They've seen an example of, uh, you know, a real executive taking executive action and not all this kind of weird kind of consensus making that, you know, the, the whole economic order does. They do all these games with the uh, the uh, what's it called uh, Davos and all of these meetings and his policy pronouncements. And on the other hand, you have Putin just taking action, just like a man of action. So this is what scares them. But I don't think it's intrinsically, uh, it's not necessarily the end of the world the way. Right, but it does increase the odds of something really bad happening. Well, it also increases the odds of something really good happening here. Maybe we start taking ourselves a bit more seriously. Yeah, right. You know, why don't we drill our own oil? Why is that off the table? Why well, does do. Biden put the, what's that? We do drill our own oil now. Well, as soon as Biden got in, what did he close off that pit, that pipeline, the, the Keystone? Keystone, yeah. Yeah, so why oil. did he do that? There's no, to me, somebody doing that is actively Radio working Astro. against the interests of the United States, as far as I can see. Is Democrats there a legit- hate, hate gas. They hate, what's that? They hate, uh, they hate trucks. They hate, uh, they hate dirty, sludgy oil. They hate mining. I hate all the all the productive things that are are at the very uh, you know very core of our of our civilization. It's an aesthetic, yeah. ideal. Yeah. It's so like it's, it's like the nobility, right? The, the nobility, like specifically, wear clothes that are extremely impractical that you could never work in. 
because it because being someone who has to work, you know, is inherently a bad thing. It means that you, that you have to work. It means that, that you're from the lower caste, right? So this is like this is not really embodied in our style nowadays, but it is embodied in our in our you know intellectual tradition. Yeah, well, we become these weak, feminine, you know, people stacked up like cordwood in urban environments. <laughs> well, I, I don't think any of us can be surprised that, that gasoline prices have, have doubled and more than doubled under under Biden. That was that was essentially his policy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well I, I'll disagree there because there hasn't been time for, for Biden's policy to really to really matter that much. I mean, this is, this is no. People big, make decisions in in the moment based on on uh, on policy changes, right? So so having uh, Biden says he wants to end the oil industry, and so that that has that has effects on where people invest and where people uh, drill. Yeah, well, well just think like like our current gas prices are the result of activities that, that go back years, so. I, I reject any kind of narrative that the, the, the Johnny Come Lately president is the reason why why gas prices are are high, kind of out of hand. Well, like it, he's why gas prices will be high because we didn't we didn't get started on on drilling as much as we should have. Yeah, but is he the reason why prices are high now? No. I mean, the right, West has voluntarily constrained supply of gasoline under Biden. I agree. Very bad decision, and it's and it's, it is in a fundamental way why gas is expensive, but uh, it's it's a years long thing. Like it's it's not like the person who, who just came in is the reason why prices are where they are now. Or can I can I drop a uh, white pill? Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, so uh, recently we had this uh, recall election uh, about last week in San Francisco. Like these three ri- ridiculously woke. Uh, school, school board, board members, you heard about this? I don't know if they made national news yes. or not. But yes. not only were they recalled, but they were recalled resoundingly, like seventy-eight percent, something ridiculous like that, in a in a city that went, I think, eighty-five percent for Biden. So I don't think we're I don't think uh, we're, we're properly uh, calculating the degree to which people are tired of this woke nonsense, and then you come you add. It's- you add the the frustration with these gas prices, the Republicans are just absolutely wrong. If they don't, we're done. We're doomed. They should. Is it because they were woke or because of coronavirus? No, it's because they were woke. It was specifically over uh, woke policies. Yeah, interesting. So there is hope, and like the uh, so like the Chinese community here are have been the victims of uh, the. Uh, you know, uh, preferred what they called uh, protected minority violence. So they have been the um, they've been culturally the, enriched. They've been targeted, and these are the homeowners, and these are the people with kids, right? These aren't these uh, you know latte drinking uh, hipsters uh, in the mission. And so there is a real move afoot uh, among the Chinese, who are I think forty plus percent in San Francisco. And they are uh, about to give the finger to anything resembling wokeness. So there could be a shift. There could be a tidal uh, sea change here. And there has been sea changes here uh, in the early 90s. We had a pretty, uh, shall we say, based mayor who introduced this thing called workfare. And if you wanted to get welfare in San Francisco, you had to work for it. You had to, you had to pick up uh, cigarette butts on the street. You know, You had to wear this 
orange vest. And it was not a status symbol to do that. And so people left for Brooklyn. So and then the bottom line is things can change and they can change for the better. And you know, I think you need to get behind those things. Well, and a white pill. Well, yeah, well, when each party's in, in control, the, the opposition tends, tends to grow because when people get power, it, they often start making bad decisions. So you saw a big backlash against Trump in the 2018 midterms. Yeah, I mean, it's called the thermostatic effect where whoever wins tends to get um, get a reaction against them. And it's kind of because an artifact of our system is that you can't really vote for what you want in a sense. Because what the voters actually want is what the balance of voters want is to have neither party fully in control. Um, but it's not like they can really coordinate that on the spot. So what they tend to do is they tend to make one party win and then make the other party lose in the next election. And then they get balanced that way kind of reliably. Um, but, but yeah, like it's, it's really, yeah, everyone who wins gets, gets, gets an immediate reaction against them. And that's probably going to happen to the Republicans as well, right? You have to remember that. So like no one's ever really done. Like it's not like if Republicans don't win now, they're done. Like the more the more one side wins, the more it gets out over its skis inherently, because this is fundamentally a, a uh, an electorate where the moderates have the deciding uh, votes, and the moderates are like these kind of wishy washy, more dominated by fear than anything else people. Right? They're, they're very dominated by by concern about losing what they have, and they're. Um, they're not very high, edu high in education. They're not very high in in um, in engagement with politics. It's a group of people that will always look cynically on whatever the winners do. So it really makes the system kind of stable in that way. Um, well, we've, come, get, yeah. we've come a long way since the depression after the 2020 election. <laughs> yeah, we have. And we have to go on offense and we have to tackle this election nonsense. We have to... We need voter ID, we need to limit the franchise, and we need to get this riprap off the street and making microchips. Mm -hmm. mm. But it's exactly the opposite now because uh, the reality is that the population that used to be democratic, the, um, the kind of the lower classes, but less, less, less educated, the lower income, the people who vote less frequently, they're now Trump voters Yeah, because of education polarization. So now it's not actually a good time. Like this whole mail-in voting thing, this, this whole rejection of mail-in voting and making it harder to vote and all that stuff, that favors the educated people. Right. That favors people who have the time to put everything in. But now. Well, but it also opened the door to fraud, if you believe. Like, I well, well, and here, here's the I thing. Democrats, Democrats have the infrastructure, the voter registration infrastructure and the, the yeah. ability to organize a fraud scheme that the Republicans just don't. Well, they have the ability to kind of obviate the, the difficulties that you can put in, in the way of, 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 of voters. So we should we should try to make it as easy as possible to vote now. Because yeah, I, I mean, I, I've heard from left wing pollsters who say that for the first time, uh, the the l less likely voters are more likely to vote Republican. Yep. It, it always used to be that uh, the less likely voters were more likely to vote Democrat and Republicans were more reliable to actually turn out. But that's changed. And that's part of a Western worldwide change in in australia in england uh and in in the united states the right-wing parties have become parties of the less educated and the working class there never was a giant educated constituency that never existed before so this is coming into being right now and um and it turns out to be paradoxically paradoxically very bad for the left because um you know these educated people are are uh well, they're just not very good, right? They run these places and they turn into shitholes. So 
That's bad, <laughs> right? You give them the power, and they just screw it up. Um, they're, they're they're not they're not well educated. They're highly educated, but they're not well educated. And so and and there aren't that many of them. Um, and hey, hey. yeah, so they have they have a problem. They have a big problem, electorally speaking. Hey, uh, Luke, can I ask uh, Ricardo and Kyle a question? Yes, of course. Okay. I'd like to hear from both of you. On a scale of one to ten, how where would you how severe was January sixth? From whose perspective? Well, how like from if, yours. If nine eleven was from your perspective, yes. Yeah. So if nine eleven was a ten, how how would you rank January sixth? Like emotionally, like or my impact on my life. Okay. So no, no, severity. The, your view of the significance of January sixth. Oh, the significance yeah. to nine eleven. Yeah, like I, I put it at two to four. Yeah, it's, it's one much lower. It's it's like a transient political talking point. It's a big one, and it's probably the biggest one of 2021, but other than COVID itself, but um, a two. I mean, 9-11 was... Yeah, if you, you know, make 9-11 a 10 out of 10, yeah. I, I'd put January 6th somewhere between a two and a four. I'd lean towards four. I think it had a big effect on on kind of the psychology of of our of of, of Congress, um, and and of of everyone who follows politics. I think like they can't stop talking about January sixth. Like all these liberal liberal highly educated podcasters that I listen to, they all they talk about two things constantly: January sixth and the big lie. The big lie being um, the notion that the okay. So there's two things though. There's the actual uh, damage, right? But as you said, it's the psychological effect. Right, it shows that there is a populace underneath them, in this country, that they think that they have power over, who actually has agency of their own. And I think that is sort of another. And it was a, it was the first of the sort of trucker rebellion, and now the Putin middle finger. You know, I think it's the danger was is completely and only psychological in my mind. But I, on a, on a one to ten, I actually I think it's a one. But okay. Yeah. Well, because the, the cycle, I mean, yeah, the Democrats talked about Russiagate for that's all they talked about for two years. I mean, so it's like how significant. OK, is January 6th more or less significant than the entire Russian investigation leading to, uh, you know, impeachment? Yeah, Probably I'd say more. like less. 10 times more significant. January 6th. Yeah, 6 is, is, is more significant than the Russian the whole Russiagate thing? Yeah. Because... Russiagate thing was, was a big deal. You had, you had the, the FBI, uh, you know, launching a serious investigation. I mean, it, it totally undermined yeah. Yeah. Totally under Trump's it, ability to do anything. I mean, so to me, well, like, so to your, so, uh, Kyle, when you say it's a big deal to these Democrats. I mean, they get hung up on like Russiagate didn't even exist. Like it's not even real. Yeah. You know, they, their delusions don't make, I mean, September 11th led to us going to war and people dying, you know, and, well, in, and in like both cases, the entire state, the, the security effect. state. In, in both cases, it's about the emotional effect. It's, it's not about the, the actual event itself. Like if, if the actual event itself had no emotional significance to anyone, than the, than the actual physical significance of, of, of 9-11 or of any of these things is it, it, essentially nothing. It's nothing. Nothing physically happened that was that big a deal. Yeah. Well, but 9-11, what do you mean, TSA, like the... Well, yeah, but that's all... That's all right, the, actual, state. the actual event itself, a few thousand people dying, is not, is not in and of itself all that significant. It's the reaction to it. 
and and Russiagate, I think, was, you know, I think it, it did change the the, the um, it accelerated the shift where the Republicans used to be super pro FBI, Democrats super anti FBI, right? That's kind of a a, a big shift that's been happening. It, it made the Republicans, it, it accelerated the the um, the divergence of the Republicans from 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 our, from our institutions, and and they sort of joined more with Trump. The the, re, the result of Trump's victory in 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 Russiagate was that the Republicans turned more towards Trump's deep state anti-deep state uh you know vibe um which is which is, which is a significant um it's not nothing right um yeah uh, but but yeah. In and of itself, I, you know, I was just you know i was just trolling luke at that point oh because luke thinks it's so high so luke thinks that, yeah i mean when we first had our conversation luke you said it was a four possibly even higher i don't recall uh, I said it was like less than one. You know, they're not even comparable. They're not even well. Like, does it, Luke? Does it distress you, or is it your perception of like how important it is to the left? No, it distresses me. I, I'm against that sort of behavior, even if it was done by the left or the right or anyone. I, I hate that sort of behavior, uh, particularly in in Congress. Like, I mean, if they overran the the White House or the Pentagon, I'd be you know, I'd also be dis distressed. I like yeah, law I mean, and order. I'm a big yeah. fan of law and order. And you love our cops and our law enforcement. I do. Generally speaking, I do love our cops. I think overall our cops do great. And our law enforcement overall, I think, is a is a really good thing. And our military, yeah, I, I, too, because they're important. I don't think that January 6th was a significant attack on what, on, what would you say? On um, democracy. On our country. Yeah. I think it was a significant attack on our country. I think it was a bunch oh, of yeah. people milling around. No, but, but see, January, January 6th was the culmination of the election fraud controversy. Who sent them there? The sitting yeah. president sent them, sent, sent them there. It, it, was, it was one branch of the, of, the, of the government versus another. It was not like these people just spontaneously decided to do it for one thing. Uh, so yeah, he did send them. He did. It's not. Yeah, I mean. Well, this is actually this is where I think like you know I would think it would be hard for a Democrat to attack them on this, but like if if so if a Republican was to attack Trump in a primary, I'd say you sent those people down the street and then you abandoned them. You, you. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, right or wrong. And I, I agree to your point, like that crowd represents Trump supporters. I mean, that's what that was. Go take the house. I mean, there's a world in which he goes and takes the house and stands on its steps and, and declares that, you know, he won whatever. But he sent those people. Ashley Babbitt got shot for for that message. And then he never even went with him. He didn't even go with him. He set them up. And, you know, I don't know. I think he is very uh, vulnerable on that point. Yeah, I think I'm with Ann Coulter. I, I think that, I think uh, DeSantis is, is the, the way to go. I think, and I, I really hope that Trump finds a way not to run because I think DeSantis, I don't know how old he is. He's probably, what, in his 40s, maybe 50s? Yeah, 40, 40. I mean, he, he's got almost like this Kennedy-esque vigor about him, and it would be just so refreshing for the country to have a non-boomer. He's 43. He's 43, wow. 
So I think he might have to defer to Trump. This but I, I I hope I hope Trump finds a way out because I you know he's what what's he how old is he going to be when he runs seventy eight he's like seventy eight right now so he's going to be eighty when he launch when during the election it's just he, too old <clears throat> simply too old he's seventy five right now oh. okay whatever right, <laughs> seventy seven yeah he's too so old we, we we see we see what having an old semi senile president does it, they're it, not effective they're stooges right. And honestly, Trump was a stooge the first time around. Yeah, exactly. I think DeSantis is is and you know the way to go. And like Coulter and Coulter is is thoroughly on the on the uh, DeSantis train, and they they just have tight discipline. They they have, you know, he's he, got he's like actually, real leadership vibe vibe yeah, about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually he's in charge of his team as opposed to like the Grand Vizier who's calling the shots. Right. Which is what any another Trump administration would be. That's right. I don't know. I think you guys underestimate Trump in like a fundamental way. Like the populist energy behind Trump is not analogous to the energy behind anybody else. And, you know, Trump is not in danger because of January 6th in, in this way. Like um, Trump's followers are willing to die for him. They're willing to do that. And they're willing to, to die for him and be abandoned and still support him. Right. So... But, but, but to Luke, yeah. but Luke, what Luke would say is that he mobilizes his enemies yeah. in a way that DeSantis doesn't. People aren't people aren't so. DeSantis has never gone on a Twitter rampage, you know, or like given an opening speech about Mexican rapists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Victory yeah. is so damaging to what you might call like uh, American norms, right? In a way that DeSantis isn't. And those well, but that moment, but of course, but like that moment has passed. Like Trump no. did his thing. <laughs> Trump is just traumatizing them more and more with every passing year. Yeah. Like January sixth was a bigger deal to them than than even RussiaGate was, and RussiaGate made them want to cry. And, and even even Trump's going down the escalator made them want to cry. Like, well, Trump, and Trump the, is really the an other... attack on them in a way that nobody else is. Yeah, but they, he also doesn't have a Twitter anymore. I don't think that matters really. Like, I, I think Trump that, needs uh, to publicly crown DeSantis. No, but <laughs> actually, I will say this: I would like it if Trump would just get behind DeSantis and be a team player. Yes, but that's not that's yes. not Trump. Trump is not that, that's just not yeah. Trump, right? Yeah. yeah, you might be right. There's, there's no possibility of that happening. Um, but yeah, like like Trump is a fundamental attack on the institutions and norms of this of this country, and the institutions and norms of this country are woke. They are woke. That's what they are, down to the bone. Now, they are woke. I don't know. Don't you think there's some woke fatigue setting in? No, that's complete bullshit. So Bill Maher, what, how do you interpret Bill Maher? Uh, An old person on the way out. <laughs> for one thing. But for another, it's like they're never going to disagree with the fundamental tenets of it. Like, it's, it's, yeah. this is a cop and a stake, basically. Like, they're never going, going to face reality because reality is, is just... Like, their entire life has been set up in terms of in terms of how... The moral thing to do is to is to ignore equality. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah they're they're basically he's become they're becoming conservative in the sense of like conserving the gains of the revolution, but like, but I, but I, but like sort of their stance is like one of prudence. It's not one of like, you know, any Democrat who cries about wokeness. So many of them cry about it in the sense of like it's going to hurt us at the polls. It's like. It, they're just going, shh, 
Yeah, I don't yep, know. Yep, yep. I, exactly. I, you know, this is all intuition on Madport. I, I, I'm, I really do sense a real withering distaste for this. Look at uh, what's his name, uh, Brett and Heather Hire, uh, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hire. Yeah. There's just so many people that are have been burned by this woke bullshit. There's just going to be a quiet kind of normie centrist Democrat that's going to say, you know, enough with you. It's just Let's the get same, the screens clean. It's the same exact story as, as the 60s, in my opinion, where, like, there are these excesses that basically nobody likes, but they, they never consider that as a repudiation of their fundamental ideology. They consider that as a repudiation of that very narrow group of people yes. in a very narrow narrow time in that very yeah. narrow place. Mm. No, and that's honestly... Well, to your mm-hmm. point, Kyle, I mean, honestly, that represents, like, most conservatives yeah like conservatives just they they think like that they think that like the 19 the civil that civil rights in 1960s has like nothing to do with 1776 they don't see like except trump and trump supporters because they don't think about it at all (laughs) yeah and that's good that's much better than thinking about it and having exactly the wrong the wrong take well, because everybody who's educated is basically yeah. like educated yeah. within the frame of like yeah. the debate between these, two, like be, the debate of like change and prudence. Like, listen, fundamentally, we have to change. Like, this is the United States; it's the proposition nation. Like, everything that goes along with that. Conser- mainstream conservatives and, and liberals all agree, or in, or in a lot of ways, they they definitely agree with that. And you you just have. So here's an example, right? Like, like Peter Thiel, uh, like was confronted by a black person in college about South Africa, and he said apartheid is based. I'm I'm paraphrasing, right? So Peter Thiel is someone who actually disagrees, and he comes from a foreign country and all that shit. Elon Musk also comes from a foreign country. Like there are people who are elite who disagree, but they are a tiny minority, and they represent kind of these these oddballs who are not really part of American culture, frankly, right? Like they're so far out of the norm that they're not really American. Uh, they're, they're not. They're not. They're not from this. From this. Uh, from this tradition, at all. Everyone think- who's, who's like a blue blood, raised in, in 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 raised into the Ivies, all that sort of shit, right? Like all these normie normie elite types, they are woke to the bone, and like they might be moderate wokes, <laughs> but they agree with the fundamental moral propositions and and, and the factual propositions. Of this, of this, uh, of this movement. So you need, you need alternative. You, you need these, these crazy, these crazy people who just have nothing to do with the, um, with, with, with the, the educated norms of this country. What do you think about the idea that Elon Musk could be based in red pill or slowly becoming based? He in definitely red-pilled. is, in fact, based in red pill, right? Except yeah. he's like into the climate shit. But I guess is that just to make money? The grift. He, he he believes in it, but he doesn't. It's hard to take to me. That's like a, I don't know. I, I don't want to say purity right. test, but it's like, how do you not see through the agenda on this? Well, here, here's just a little local news. Uh, so so Elon Musk has this factory in the Bay Area, and the city council down there was just giving him all kinds of crap. So he just said, you know, f you, I'm moving to Texas. And so I think he's just gotten a taste of this. Uh, He's just been burnt a little, a few too many times by this 
you know, lefty Bay Area uh, ideology, and that he he could be slowly he be could he could be our guy in two years probably. He wants to actually build things, and actually building things goes it goes against the uh, the the kind of educated aesthetic of this country, right? Yeah. It's it's like people fundamentally hate him because he builds things, right? It, 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 like the world is turning into an Atlas Shrugged novel in, in, in some ways. I mean, I don't agree yeah. with Ayn Rand in, in, about a lot of things, but there is this fundamental hatred of, of people who build things because they build things, because they're productive, because there's some objective yardstick you can put their achievements to. And uh, yeah, like he's, you know, he's not, he's not really the, uh, the normal managerial class, right? He doesn't, he, he doesn't uh, make his make his bread through reputation. He makes his bread through building things. Yeah, but there's a big fraud side to Elon Musk, but that's a different conversation. But he yeah. is he does move markets. You know, if he tweets, he can move the price of Bitcoin. I mean, isn't he the richest man in the world now? Yes. I think so. Yeah, by a lot, by a lot. But yeah, so he's like, I mean, he's like literally the richest man in the world. And he, yeah. I think he's, you know, Bill Gates didn't become, I mean, Bill Gates arguably isn't even as influential as Elon Musk. Bill Gates is also kind of rogue, though, I think. Like, he wants to dim the sun. He wants to do all kinds of things. Doing things is not is not the woke aesthetic, right? All yeah. these, like, uh, people who, who who made their money or their power by actually building things are, in some fundamental sense, alienated from the, uh, well, from the, from the norms. Well, consider, but, yeah. look who we've got now. So we've got, we've always had Peter Thiel, right, at one level or another. We more or less have Joe Rogan, who's big. He's huge, right? And, and we could potentially have Elon Musk, and that mm. there a, there's the, the potential making is of, of a snowball there, right? If gas prices continue to be high, if like you know Europe explodes, you know the, people are going to be you know willing to entertain entertain new ideas. Just a thought. Well, well, the, Trump has already broken things wide open, mm. uh, and like you know reshaped things fundamentally because our <laughs> Our, our educated elite, which which a large segment of which did nothing except try to gatekeep, failed even at that, right? Mm. It's it's not even like, oh my God, he revealed the weakness. It's just that the weakness is there at all, right? Like these people are not able to run a political system or run a political party, run run a city in a practical way. And so, you know, power is is flowing out to people who, to out to the periphery. Um, and I think that's good. And it's not all because the the uh, the the American elite is not is is not very practical. It's, it's because they like even if they were practical, I wouldn't like them. I, I don't like the Soviets, right? Even if they're good at building things, I don't like the Nazis. Even if they're good at building things, these people are not good, right? This this ideology is not good. It's fundamentally uh, uh, not not the Fed post. It is fundamentally anti-white, right? Whatever else it is. Yeah. Are there conservative policies for dealing with homelessness? For example, perhaps treating it as a law enforcement issue. I, I was away in Australia for two months. When I came back, I saw a lot fewer homeless on the streets in LA. So in LA, there's a widespread uh, disgust with uh, the homeless and with rising rates of crime coming from the center and the left as well. I mean, people on the left don't want rising crime rates and huge numbers of, of homeless so what's the what's the what's the right-wing approach to homelessness drugs i mean you, i think you, 
No, I, I think you. I think you have to basically uh, the uh, the exact opposite of what criminal justice is. Criminal the problem with criminal justice reform is like you see all these people in the prisons for these drug crimes, and they go, "Oh, it was you know, it was just a it was just a couple of pounds of marijuana," you know. I mean, but the the point is like these drug dealers should be executed. They shouldn't be in prisons, and this is. How do people's lives fall apart? They fall apart because of drugs and alcohol. I mean, I guess there's something that had, I mean, it's just. So, so you want to take like the, um, was it Indonesia? I mean, many countries. There's many examples. Yeah. So very hard. They really to are. Work. Yeah. Well, it's just like. So I'll tell you a story. Uh, so I knew a guy, I knew a guy who went to, I think it was Indonesia, one of the Muslim countries. Yeah. Gets into his hotel room, flops on the bed, pulls out a joint from his luggage, lights it up, smokes it, and like two minutes later, cops bang down the door and throw him in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Did he have... (laughs) So, you know... It's like the RA. The RA called the campus cops. (laughs) And so basically... So jail, you know... It's not like American jail. They, his family had to like bribe someone like 10,000 bucks to get him a sleeping mat. So, you know, just to know what the stakes are in different in other countries, you know, it, it's, it could be much worse than we have it here. Well, but well, the reason the we have homeless is because like... we pay for them, right? Like they're literally yeah. being, being paid for. Like why, why does India have elephants? I mean, not elephants, uh, cows. Cows walking around everywhere because they, they like them and they, and they you know, support them. And they protect them, and they fundamentally subsidize them, right? So we, we have these homeless people running around because, for some reason, people like to pay them. Yeah, like, well, I think they see it. I think they see it as, you know, it's a cheap price to pay to keep them from knifing you yeah, in the street, my, right? Yeah. My dad always said that the social welfare was there to keep people out of his garbage cans. Yeah. Yeah. I think it... it it brings a lot more people into the garbage can. Like, I think well, it does, but I think it brings that drug addict type. There's like the person who is like, I mean, there are people that are going to end up homeless for things outside their control, or like, you know. But the the drug addict is enabled by I, that is the person for whom the little bit of cash that like keeps them, uh, you know, able to indulge their habits. Those are the one. Th- those are the problem ones, and I, I think like drugs is the root. I mean, the, I mean, they're the things that drive people into drugs, like broken homes and shit like that. But I mean, it's a whole nother. You know, the Christian theocracy that's required here is is deep in. <laughs> so, Luke, what would you yeah. do? Yeah. What would you do, Luke? Uh, well, I, I think Kyle put it better than I could. We, we've been subsidizing homelessness. So uh, reverse all the policies that we've implemented with regard to the homeless in, in places like L.A. and San Francisco over the past 10 years in particular. All right, and, so no more checks, no more needles, no more crack pipes, just I mean, it's not complicated. Cold turkey, treat like right? would treat someone who's putting up posters that say it's okay to be white. Yeah. I'm not necessarily <laughs> disagreeing with you. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to understand the contours of your well, I, policy. I, I, 
I, I don't know much about it. I don't know what, what are the conservative policies, but I, I want to look at cities that have had some success at, at dealing with it. I, I'm open to left wing to right wing policies, but well, what you know, we're doing now is people have to not want it there, right? Yeah. People don't want people putting up uh, posters that say it's okay to be white. So they're so like if you do that and you get seen doing it, you know, it's going to stop because the community doesn't want it. The community does not have this response to homelessness. That's why they're homeless around. So that's it, right? Like, like I don't know. Like, it's it's not even. It's kind of you a know, you know how in the sense that the only reason why it is an issue is because people decided that that, that, that it should be there, right? For some reason. Um, why? Well, you know, <laughs> look at our education system. I guess for for this and many other problems. Uh, all right. So just so you know, in San Francisco, the, the homeless people, I would say ninety percent of them are incapable of doing any work at all whatsoever. They're completely, utterly useless human beings. Now, yeah. uh, so uh, we just cut checks and then they just die up and pile up in gutters and then we deal with it, right? Uh, maybe repopulate the uh, mental health centers or the loony bins or whatever you call them, the insane asylums. There's the, the two categories of it. It's like the people who would be in, in, the same, in insane asylums if there were insane asylums, first of all. And it's also just drug addicts. Like, that's basically it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like, we've we let a drug problem get out of control. Like, and again, that, that reflects kind of a cultural tolerance of it. You know, people want that, I don't know, they want that tolerance, so there is tolerance. The things that they don't want to tolerate, they don't tolerate, and then they're not a problem, right? <laughs> so the, the, the root of the problem is the tolerance. And you know, from that comes everything else. So, like, if you don't solve that, then then how, how does this get solved? And should it even get solved? Should it even get solved? Is it a bad thing that people who have these values are forced to face up to them? I don't think it is. I don't either, but that's seen as an archaic. It just won't fly. And, well, at least in San Francisco, that won't fly. Well, people honestly exactly. believe right. that people can be reformed somehow, or they just think they're doing the right thing by subsidizing not only giving them food, but giving them actual drug equipment, drug paraphernalia. Right. They Good think that's... And, and who, are, who are we to judge? Let them do that to their cities. And then the people who, who, people who want to tolerate that can tolerate that. People who don't want to tolerate that can move to red states. And, uh, and you know, uh, this migration pattern is not turning out well for Democrats. And, like, what's, what's our problem with this? Like, if, you know, some deep blue, blue city has these values and wants to subsidize this behavior, then that's up to them, right? Like it's no skin off our back, from from like a from like the movement's perspective, or, or or from the rights perspective. If that's what they want to do, it's disgusting and horrible. But like, at least it shows their true colors. And if if you stay in those cities, then you're you're kind of uh, putting your putting your thumbs up for that as well, right? So you know, eat you know, sleep in the bed that you made. What's the problem, right? I don't know. Would would it be better if if all this was if all these values these horrible values that these people have were not visible in such a absolutely uh, stark way. Well, well, they are very visible, at least in San Francisco, they're very visible. I don't know if yeah. you noticed, but uh, so uh, there's, you know how people, I don't know if you're aware of this, but people like camp out underneath yeah. freeway overpasses. I'm well so aware. There, so there's like, you know, 50, 60, 70 people pitching tents and just kind of living rough out of their uh, freeway passes. So everybody, it's very, very visible. And just yesterday, there's like a fire. Like I, one of these campings yeah. just blew, you know, went up in smoke. 
and a couple people died, you know, it was just, it's just becoming really uh, unmistakable. So the question is, you know, people aren't ready for the, uh, I don't think, at least in San Francisco, people aren't ready for the cold turkey solution. There needs to be some sort of interim solution that seems compassionate, something that seem that just sort of allows these people to disappear and at least gives people the uh, idea that they're not being thrown to their deaths. Yeah, well, to be real with you, if if like there was there was a imagine there's a constituency like like a city in America and it has a political bent, and this political bent is such that they have like giant homeless encampments everywhere, but they also are super uh, super anti-feminist, super anti uh, woke, super anti you know uh, uh, you know forced diversity, and they're super anti immigration and they're and they're uh, you know they, they have all the right opinions otherwise. Like I, I would not have a problem with these people. Like the, the 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 problem with the homeless thing is not the homeless thing itself, but what correlates with it, right? The ideology that causes this and causes so many other problems. Um, like in and of itself, I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's kind of like like if you think in and of itself it's a giant deal, I think you're kind of a wimp, to be frank. Uh, okay. Yeah, I have no solution. Any solution I I would have would have to do with like uh, forced labor. <laughs> Or putting people in prison for committing crimes, like we are depopulating the prisons, is probably not a coincidence that we're also having a massive increase in homelessness and crime. Uh, that's true, but I, I don't. Even th I mean, I don't think we have a fraction of the prison capacity that we would need. I, I think even you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a New Englander, Luke. I'm an old school New Englander. And I think I think uh, work brings out the best in people. Work is a, you know, cleanses the soul. I think put work puts people on the right track. I don't mean to, when I say work, I don't mean for it to sound cruel. I mean to it. I think there's redemptive redemptive power in work. Can't we but get like, on why that train? Are, they're not working for like a very specific set of reasons. Either they're insane or they're drug addicts. Basically, like that's that's like ninety nine percent of them are insane or drug addicted. So like the work thing is a red herring. Like, how do you stop them from being insane? Well, first of all, we can't. Most, we mostly can't. And then how do we stop them from being drug addicts? Well, well we, we put a stop to the drugs. And, um, that's your one, yeah, two, Yeah, we can definitely right take over those. And that's uh, it, right? The, the, once you've done that, there's no more problem to solve at all. Okay, put it this way. So uh, just, there's all these, if you look at the San Francisco skyline, you see all kinds of buildings, right? A good percentage of these buildings are what's called single room occupancy. They're small tiny apartments that aren't even proper apartments, but they're enough for a, like a single homeless person to live and then go down to the Glide Memorial Church and get a free meal and then go down and get their services. I mean, we yeah, totally like, do subsidize this beyond belief. Yeah. And we do need to stop. They're like the monks in these Buddhist places that go around with their bowl and are supported by the community. That's what they like, right? So the community, community has decided that this is what they want. So they have it. Right, good for them. Mm -hmm. Right, like I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, so how do we undo? Can this I have a much bigger undone? problem with birth control than I have with with meth and heroin and all these these new drugs and all all this drug abuse and stuff. Like where I'm at is that the pro the reason why I I would even talk about this as an issue is that the same thing is behind birth control and this. Right. The same attitude. The same thing is behind immigration and this. Right? It's the same philosophy, it's the same ideology, it's the same group of people. 
It's the same thing. What do, you, what do you mean? Can you elaborate? What's wrong with birth control? Uh, it's, it's not a good idea to bring your birth rate below replacement, right? It puts you on a path to extinction. Okay. And, and the problem is the best people use it and the worst people don't. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. The problem is the best people use it and the worst people don't. Well, yeah, but also there is that problem. But separately, there's also the problem that you're not even like not even not not even the worst are, are moving towards a situation where they're not going to replace themselves either. So I don't know, like uh, here's the thing that happens, right? There are these chickens. Chickens have a behavior where um, if they ever learn how their eggs taste, they just eat them, right? Like normally in the course of normal events, they never learn, they never learn how their eggs taste. But if you mm -hmm. feed one, a, a chicken its own egg, then they'll just break open their eggs and eat them, right? And it's like, well, why would evolution be so fucking stupid as to create a creature like this? Well, the reason is that evolution just is based on what worked before, right? If it just didn't happen, then even if it's crazily, insanely, stupid from the perspective of, of some enlightened designer it'll still happen right it's like why would evolution create a group of people who who do everything they can to avoid reproducing themselves right like they they go to extreme lengths to make sure that sex does not result in children well evolution didn't consider that possibility because that wasn't that just wasn't in the in the past environment so you know yes there is this problem of you could call it the eugenics problem or the or the dysgenics problem right but separately, there's a problem that it's not even clear that humanity can survive in this, in this, uh, in the long run, uh, in a world where where uh, where birth control is is freely and readily available. Wow. Interesting. No, I, I'm just I'm I'm pondering what uh, what Kyle's saying. So maybe the, maybe the solution to everything is just to do nothing. <laughs> no, no welfare, no birth control, no, any of these interventions that seem to go against nature, just don't do these interventions and let the chips fall where they may. And then what you're left with are, you know, non-dysgenic people. You have eugenic people who do eugenic things and create eugenic societies. Well, like the reason we're here is like the reason we have all our virtues is because of these past environments, which were, as you described, they were, they were, they, they, they were absent these, these problems. Right? But I'm not that, I think that frankly, it's not a good approach, even though it's the only thing that's ever been proven to work, it's just not a good approach to, to um, try to, to, like, imagine that, that you spend all your effort fighting birth control, uh, the, the pill, and then another innovation comes up and, and wipes you out, right? What you want is something that's more resilient than that. So like, even though I, I will trad post a lot and I'll, and, and I agree with the trads about a lot of things, I think fundamentally the right approach is to innovate yourself, but innovate in the direction that will encourage human thriving and survival. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of things that you can, you can do in that direction, but, but like the fundamental barrier here is that there's an aesthetic in the West, which basically despises instinctively everything that, that would practically work right so like uh, for example here's something that would work uh there's a huge number of women in the third world they would do anything for money you could just pay them to bear children for the west 
there is nothing that revolts a, lib, a liberal more than, than, this, than this, uh, this suggestion on so many levels, right? You're exploiting POCs. It's, it's Handmaid's Tale. It's all this stuff. Like, they have all these, these <laughs> antigens to, to this thing. But the thing is that they have antigens specifically to anything that might work. Right. They hate nuclear power for the same reason. Right. They hate gas for the same reason. Anything that might work is 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 disliked by them because they have they have an aesthetic, kind kind of an a, an elite aristocratic aesthetic, that people who concern themselves with what works are dirty and bad, and and evil and not the in group. And the people who are who are good and useful in like the the, the social games the the, uh, the the social climber games, they are specifically those people who don't concern themselves with with that right. So the way you signal that you're a good, useful person is to signal as hard as possible that you're not interested in the, in the practical and that the practical, in fact, revolts you. Um, but yeah, like, there is a vast supply of third world labor that could do this and that we could pay for almost nothing to, to, raise, to raise our fertility rates exponentially, basically arbitrarily. Are we going to do it? No. Are we going to do anything like that? No. And the reason for it is that we have a... Um, well, they'll explicitly say that they, they, they like the idea of human extinction or, or, or they like the idea of reducing the human population to 500 million or something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, yeah, I didn't plan to solve the world's problems tonight, but uh, I may have to uh, drop soon and take care of some things. Okay. Uh, uh, Elliot, thanks for stopping by. Any final words, Elliot? Um. Uh, we're stronger together, Luke. Thank you. <laughs> All right, see you, Luke. See you, Thanks, Kyle. bro. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Uh, Bye. Kyle, how would you describe the development of your thought in the, what, 18 months since I've spoken to you last? Uh, yeah, let me think about that. Um, I'd say that my, my factual view of the world, uh, like where I stand on the facts, has diverged a lot from from the um, from the right. Uh, you know, I, I think yeah. that they're they're quacks to a larger extent than I thought, I thought before. I think that, that they've they've been anti-science, they've, they've been anti-empiricist, all that stuff. But yeah. my alignment with the right, and especially the populist right, has become much much closer. Um, for two possible reasons. One is that I don't have like the the more ugly elements of this isn't right thought shoved mm -hmm. up in front of me over and over again, so I don't have that kind of emotional reaction. Yeah. Um, another reason is that there hasn't been a Charlottesville, um, right? And that's very good. And like I will say that I'm still a principled anti-Nazi and I'm anti-murder, and um, the solution to what ails us cannot be becoming uglier than 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 even our our current society, right? Um, I don't like the, the alt-right. I, I don't like the, uh, yeah, like <laughs> the problem is the, the, the culture of, of, of murder and, and, uh, and idiocy. And the solution to that is not a culture of murder and, and idiocy. But if it's not that, then I am on board with essentially any, any populist, um, populist right, uh, you know, intervention. And, and what do you think about the widespread spread, uh, veneration of Putin 
among dissident right? I think it's like wrongheaded. Like, uh, again, like the normie take that I have again and again in this conversation, I didn't get to say it necessarily. Uh, war is bad. War is bad. Um, it's really, really bad. It always has been bad. And um, it's, it's, it didn't get any better because we have thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other. Um, it's dangerous. Uh, it's, it has a snowball effect where you can, it can suck up an arbitrary percent of humanity's or, 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 or of a country's resources and attention. And uh, it involves the brutal slaughter of many, many people as a, as a matter of course. So it's bad. Um, it can be good. It, it's, um, it's like prisoner dilemma kind of or, or, or a collective action problem. If everybody goes to war, then everybody is severely fucked. Um, like there's this island, uh, you know, the, the, the island that is now the Dominican Republic in Haiti. And uh, population density on the island is like five times or ten times less, or, or the historical population density of the island back, back in prehistoric times that we that we that we derive that we understand from 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 from, from uh, digging digging through bones is five ten times less than, than what the island would support, and the most likely explanation for that is war, right? They were just constantly killing each other. Uh, war, war is uh, war can consume uh, a lot of 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 value. It can consume civilization, um, but it can be good for the individual society that goes to war. But for everyone else, it's bad. Like when someone goes to war the way Putin might go to war, they're taking from the global commons in, in a sense. Like it's not like all this globalism stuff. A lot of it is cringe, but the reality is that there is a coordination problem. And if we all choose cooperate, we become much, much richer and much safer than if we all choose to defect. And, and Putin's invasion would be defective. So it's bad for everybody else. It might be good for, for Russia, good for Putin, but it's bad for everybody else, for sure. Um, no military. Like, uh, like, like Elliot was talking about how, oh, maybe this is good. <laughs> maybe this will uh, this will make it easier for populists to, to, to win. Or, I don't know what it was, but it's not good. It's not good for anybody except for, for the people who are the direct beneficiaries. And it's maybe not even good for them, but those are the only people that could help. So. And the old uh, tension between elites and populists, have you developed your thinking on that any more than what you've already elucidated? Uh, yeah, like I think that um, like on the show, I was more on the elite side. And I think I, I still like, yes. if you put me into, into those same debates, Yeah, I would still be on the elite side because the other side is like, you know, implicitly defending all kinds of crazy things, crazy, crazy activities that are both rep reprehensible and disgusting, but also strategically uh, completely disastrous and, you know, would result in handing power to the left and like the, just, just bad on every single level. So I, <laughs> I, I want to defend the, the elite notion, the, the uh, elite ivy, uh, ivory tower notion that war is bad and that murder is bad. So I don't break break with the elite on everything, right? I think that, that there are some things that everyone has agreed about since, you know, since anyone put put uh, put a steel to to a clay tablet, right? Um, I don't know if that's even appropriate terminology, but yeah, there are things that 
there are quote unquote elite beliefs that you should not counter signal just because the elite believe it. Right. Um, right. So, for example, I think that the elites were more right about COVID and how to respond to it than the populace were. How about yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think the elites were more right about uh, the, the paucity of a voter fraud in the 2020 election than the populace were. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, to me, the, the response to COVID uh, sh showed me the, uh, the poverty of the right intellectually. I just thought that the right and the conservatives were, were by and large uh, not nearly as competent and didn't make nearly as much sense as the the centers, the people in the center and the center left. Sure, but here's something that's instructive, right? The way that they they said that right wing protests were a reprehensible, despicable, you know, murder mm -hmm. of elderly people, but the Black Lives Matter protests, right? They were still great, right. even though they yeah. happened at the exact wrong time, right? Yeah. So yeah. the reality is that. This is a game that the right can't win, right? The right is just being bowled over in the in the uh, kind of educated debate arena by yeah. people who are not good faith. And even though they might be factually correct on many things, on other things they're not factually correct and they won't even talk about that. But put that to one side. Put to one side their actual direct lies, which there are many of. Even when they tell the truth, they twist that truth in their interests. So um, I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a little thought experiment, right? So imagine that, you know, you're familiar with Bayesian reasoning? It's where you, yes. you update, yeah, okay. So imagine you have an oracle and it's told you the truth every single time, right? Every single time it's told you the truth. But the last time, it talks to you. It tells you a lie that kills you. Like, for example, yeah. um, you ask, oh, is, 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 the, is, is the main switch off? I forgot. Is the main switch off? Can I work on this on, on electrical outlet? And then it tells you, yes, it's off. You touch it, you die, right? In situations like that, Bayesian reasoning doesn't hold. The only, the only winning move is just to disregard everything, no matter what the quote-unquote probability is, because by the time uh, they they betrayed you, it's not going to matter anymore, right? Like, uh, uh, if your interlocutor is fundamentally hostile, then you, they are unreliable regardless of how reliable they've been in the past and regardless of, of, um, of the quality of their argumentation. Hmm. Because, yeah. Now, an entity, I, yeah, an entity yeah, that's sufficiently malevolent simply yeah. cannot be trusted regardless of of, of of the signals that it's putting out that it's trustworthy and regardless of its past record of trustworthiness and all of that, right? And, and in fact, I could modify that 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 kind of kind of uh, uh, that that allegory that that I gave you, and I could modify it such that it still tells the truth, but it tells the truth that kills you, right? A sufficiently ma malicious actor, it doesn't matter if it tells the truth. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's the more more reliable oracle. It, all that stuff doesn't matter. Because all of that can be subverted by sufficient um, sufficient malevolence. So, are you more or less optimistic about the United States vis-a-vis -vis its rivals than when we spoke last? Well, the same. I don't think that much has changed. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I see the United States in a very strong position that uh, China has intractable problems. Russia's got intractable problems. Japan has intractable problems. I, I think the 21st century is going to be another American century. Chinese fertility is crashing towards South Korean levels, and they've uh, they put people in jail for experimenting on, on biotechnology. So, uh, yeah. They're not... Uh, They're not. Uh, they're not. They're not taking our best, right? We're not sending our best. Right. <laughs> they're they're aping the West, and, and they're copying the Western educated opinion. But the Western educated opinion is not. It's not that good. Uh, like the whole overpopulation population bomb thing. They took that hook, line, and, and sinker, and look what it did to them. Right. You got the one-child policy. You got, you know, tremendous acceleration of the fertility cliff. And and a uh, you know a, a gender mismatch as well. So they don't even have as many as many women as they should for their population. The uh, like go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the the biologically based people on the right, such as the Steve Saylor and Greg Cochran, had a pretty good COVID. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and and the right in the beginning was like, oh my god, it's so horrible that the left is going to let this COVID in, into our into our country, and they were like super COVID hawks. Um, then they turned around. It's, it's, it's the polarization thing. Uh, like there's, there's this, um, the saying on less wrong, which is politics is the mind killer. Politics turns people stupid, right? I think, you know, it's kind of overwrought, but it's true. Um, people, people generally, even intelligent people, they turn partisan and they just can't, their, their brain shuts off. Whatever. But like, uh, it, it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. In some situations, the right move is to turn your brain off. In yeah, or, or, or even really to believe matter. something that's false. Yeah, oh, exactly. You're served by, by believing a lot of false things. Yeah. So, such as your mother loves you. <laughs> or by blind... <laughs> that's, a, that's a disturbing uh, example. <laughs> but, um, blindly resisting everything that your opponent tries to do can be good. Especially if you're prone to paralyzation if, if you if you if you think about everything right um which is often the case for for for, for collective actors for, for for group actors like right. there was this, this great article about about tech companies and um and there was some management thing where they would they would have one message which was deliver fast deliver fast and then you know the guy talked to the management and he said well actually the big the big issue that you're facing is is reliability um, like if, if your service goes down, it'll destroy the company at blah, 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 blah. And they said, yeah, we understand that reliability is really important, but if we said deliver fast and reliably, then people will just turn in circles and not do anything at all. So we, we can only really deliver one message to this large organization. This is a tech company. This is, this is, this is supposedly intelligent people, right? But still, when you have a large group of people, you can only really give very simple instructions. And, and expect them to be actually followed. Because if, if, you, give, if you give two two instructions, uh, you know, deliver quickly and keep it reliable, they'll just find some reason why why doing anything contradicts one of those two dictums and not do anything at all. Um, so yeah, the reality of like dealing with large groups of people is is even more grim than dealing with individuals in the sense that you need to understand that you're very limited in how much sophistication you can actually bring to bear. 
So often, like you have to do simple things that, yeah, you have, you have to keep it simple, keep it simple, stupid. Um, and, you know, we could say, oh, sometimes the left is right, you know, you have to keep that in mind. We mostly want to resist the left, but sometimes the left is right. But if we say that, then people, people will probably just turn in circles and not do anything at all. So the message that you kind of have to put out to the mass audience is the left is always wrong. They're always wrong. Never believe them. Don't believe anything they say, you know. And that leads to, you know, results that are locally very stupid, but kind of globally, they're they're uh, they're better than the alternative. Uh, how about saying a few more words on Peter Thiel, who appears to now want to devote himself completely to uh, Trumpian politics? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm glad that he's doing that. Um, I think, you know. My take on him and his candidates is that in some way they, they kind of strike me as disconnected from from realistic politics. Yeah. Um, so that's a problem. That's going to make him less effective than he would otherwise be. Um, maybe I'm not glad that he's doing this. Maybe I'd rather he, he sort of work on, on new tech stuff and uh, kind of... Like, a lot of what Teal does is that he, he makes it so that you don't have to be like some some hick idiot who doesn't have any money and doesn't have any prospects um, and be on the right, right? Like, uh, he's, he's an example of, you can be on the right and you can have money and you can have uh, a lot of prestige and success, and that's good, right? Um, especially moving into this, this education polarization thing. Um, it's, it's good to have people subverting the, uh, the stereotype and uh, making it possible for people on the elite to people in the elite to, you know, jump ship from the norm. And, you know, the less elites you have, the more important the ones that you, you actually get are. And uh, what do you think about the rise of YouTube alternatives like Odyssey and Rumble? Odyssey and Rumble are both, uh, in my opinion, utterly doomed. Um, utterly, utterly doomed. Fit you, utterly, utterly doomed. Something, something new might come, but um, hasn't hasn't happened yet. Nothing that nothing that is now on the on the horizon has. Uh, on the why do you say YouTube that? Why do you say that? Um, YouTube is good, man. Uh, YouTube is good. You you post the videos, and then people can click on them and watch them. Even if it's a million people, yes. Even if it's a million people. Even if it's a billion people, yes. Even if it's a billion people. What if it's like five years later and you still want people to click on it and, and watch the video? Yes, it'll happen. Okay. That's just it. Like uh, YouTube does the job. None of the others do the job, right? Oh, wait, the, the tech watch. seems pretty good on both Rumble and Odyssey. It, it, it plays quickly, um, even often better quality than, than YouTube. I believe it. But the problem is that... Um, Nowadays, there, there's there's like bandwidth as a service, right? Like, uh, what would you say? Like, you can just throw AWS bucks at something and have super high quality and all that, right? Mm -hmm. That's not that's not a problem. Where it becomes a problem is that it's super expensive and unsustainable. And if if, if like two million people or or <laughs> yeah, if once you once you have to do it at scale for a long time, you get eaten. Anyone could set up, you could set up, set up a video hosting website, but like, 
the, the problem is that you need to make it you need to make it a business proposition. But don't you think Republicans have realized that they need alternative tech and they are funding Rumble pretty pretty well, it seems? You just don't Do think it's you just don't think it's viable long term. Do they need alternative tech? Sure. Why why would you not think that uh Republicans would benefit from from technology like like Rumble that uh, that caters to their views. Well, which views exactly? Like, oh, okay. So, the the dissident right thing. Obviously, the dissident right thing is not going to be allowed to flourish on these new platforms either. Right. Right. Um, now, okay. So put that to one side. In terms of like Normicon stuff. Um, Normicon stuff is allowed on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. The only time it gets banned is when it turns into into Fed posting. But you kind of want that anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what, what's the what, why do we need this again? Oh, because for example, I'm gonna have to pull this YouTube video. I, yeah, I, well, you, I, you, yes, yes. And, I, and I, then I can post it entirely on Rumble and Odyssey and BitChute. For the distant right, I agree. I agree. For the distant right, I agree 100. percent right. How about for the mainstream right? Well, for example, uh, uh, you can't say that uh, the transgender craze is mentally ill. You can't say that on YouTube. Oh, you, 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 can, can, say, you can say it is mentally ill, sure. You can't. I, I don't think you can. So, so there are certain basic parts of conservatism that you can't say on YouTube. You can't get too direct about criticizing any, uh, what, what do you call it, um, the civil rights groups, uh, what are they called again? Oh, protected groups. Yeah, protected classes. Protected yeah, protected classes, classes yeah. yeah. You can criticize any protected class, but <laughs> you can't get too direct about it and you can't get too harsh about it. Mm-hmm. However, is this not going to be the case on the new uh, conservative platforms? Uh, there's definitely more room. Like, I am have much more room on, on Rumble than uh, on, on YouTube. Okay, so here's what happens every time, right? So... Uh, Fuentes was on this DLive platform, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it embraced Fuentes and all, and all this kind of that kind of thing. But like, you have to understand that in the beginning, the strategy here is that you're pouring tons of money into this thing, and it has to catch fire or you die. So everybody's on board, unless they're like totally beyond the tail. But you know, everybody's on board at first, right? The question is not whether not not the permissiveness in the beginning. Where they're desperate for every last click. The question is, what are the, what's their permiss- permissiveness going to be after they're established? Is it going to be very similar to Facebook? Probably. Probably going to be very similar to Facebook, right? In my opinion. And uh, if it gets really dissimilar from Facebook, if it goes much further than Facebook in terms of like enabling right-wing speech and all that stuff, um, like there's going to be like a like a backlash, right? Because and I think that, that a lot of the right's popularity is because the right can't really put forward an ultimate vision. Um, people don't like being told what to do. They don't like the, the ugly sounding work of, of creating and establishing norms, which is what the left is doing right now. The left is like creating a new religion, right? creating a whole new cultural framework. And people hate it. They hate everything. They hated the moon landing. They, 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 they hate things that are good and things that are bad. They hate doing much of anything. And the right is being prevented from, from, from doing much of anything and uh, might be good for them, like Thorley. Like, Interest. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what's, and the, so, what's the cultural innovation that, that would be that would be uh, great for the right? Really, like like, like is, is it going to be great for the right if they um, retrench their position on 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 gay marriage slash uh, what else? Uh, marijuana, um, you know, uh, abortion rights, all all that kind of thing, like. <laughs> My experience, even in very right-wing places, is that people have like a don't tread on me attitude. And once you start to tread on too many people, then they get pissed off. Right? Um, like uh, like uh, the, 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 the Fuentes strategy, where, where Fuentes is like a super, super um, thought policy. He's super thought policy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Um, that's alienating, right? When right-wing pe- people kind of put it all out there and say everything that they think, it's alienating. Um, much more photogenic to have uh, discretion, which is what these platforms force, and what I believe that, that their successes will also force. Like, uh, I think that, that these, these, these platforms are gonna, are gonna be ruled by Normicons, and these Normicons are uh, not going to let it get too spicy. Um, and how about you? Have you consumed much alt? alternative uh, tech the last year or two i mean a little i've i've tried um i mean i i, I try to try to have have a, a finger in in these platforms but like i think that the main unregulated spaces nowadays are all cell phone spaces like telegram telegram uh-huh. is, is way less re- regulated um all, all these things that are kind of built on texting slash slash uh slash phones they are um, kind of, it's kind of a norm that you can text anything you want to anyone you want, right? It doesn't right. exist on the internet. Yeah. Um, that's where like the freedom is, and, and like I, I severely doubt that any Web three thing is going to be freer than that because it's already as free as you can get. Um, you can basically do anything anything you want as long as it's not, not literally, literally illegal. Um, I would like to see like I would like to see some kind of de facto decensoring of everybody, right? That, that could result from, from 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 a revolution in technology where everything becomes decentralized. That would be cool. Um, that's not really what any of these new platforms are, so I'm not really fundamentally excited by them. Um, yeah, I, I would like to be able to say anything I want, but that's not going to be the reality on these new conservative places, and it's not going to be the reality on um, on any centralized platform. And how much time do you spend reading newspapers, or what do you? How do you stay informed about the world? Uh, your favorite podcasts? How do you do it? Uh, Twitter, ninety-nine percent. Twitter. Um, you when a new event is happening, you you follow the people who are first first to the to the what do you call it? The um, first to the punch. Yeah. And uh, you follow people who seem sensible. You follow the kind of Substack crowd. Yeah. Uh, Hanania. Uh, yeah. You know. Anatoly Carlin, um, all those, all those kind of types. Substack is much, but, yeah. Substack has been a wonderful development. A yes. lot of great people on there. Uh, I like Matt Iglesias's takes. Yes. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot. There's a lot of good journalism going on nowadays. I think we're spoiled for good for good journalism. Um, I mean, but, yeah, yeah, you can just get lost on Substack. There's so much great stuff there. Yeah. And Richard Haninia, he he's wonderful. 
Yeah, I think I fundamentally disagree with him in a lot of ways. I think, uh, yeah, he. Uh, I don't. I don't love him as a as a comment. I I don't agree with him, but I think mm-hmm. he's worth uh, worth following. Yeah, he's among the the most intelligent right wing commentators. Mm-hmm. I mean, who who are your favorite commentators about the world? My favorite commentators about the world. Well, obviously you have, you have the old Greg Cochran. Yeah, have, Cochran uh, Sailor. Uh, yeah, Steve Sailor, of course. You have you have Anatoly Carlin has been has been really quite great. Um, the kind of liberal journalist uh, complex. I like Nate Cohen. I like Nate Silver. Um, I like Iglesias. I like um, some of the five thirty eight guys at, at the podcast. 538 podcast. They have a lot of appropriate political takes. David Shore is a great uh, resource for understanding uh, yes. political statistics. Um, Left wing pollster, but yes. very interesting. Yeah. Um, but like broadly speaking, I think that when you follow people who have who have topical um, topical information, your feed ends up being filled with topical information all the time. And uh, it's really cool. And any great books that you've read in the past year that come to mind? I have not been reading a lot in the past year. Um, I really have not. I've been... Uh, only thing I've been reading are, are textbooks. Um, like some, some programming textbooks and uh, physics textbooks. And a linear algebra textbook. But I have not been reading uh, reading anything... Uh, any novels or... or uh, what do you say? You know, nonfiction, uh, generic nonfiction. Have you done any live streaming over the past year? Uh, no, I've been live streaming three. You're my uh, my first live stream in a while. I don't know. I still have the same problems that I did before. Yeah. It's but yeah, it's, it's I think it's it's a good thing in in moderation. Uh, I'm glad to see that that you're still here. I, yeah. I've been yeah. I'm heartened whenever I whenever I see that you're uh, you're still. Blasting away out into the into the interwebs. Um, yeah, I'm glad to talk to you again. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. All right, uh, thanks, Kyle. Any any final words this evening? Well, uh, best of luck to all the people I argued with. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> thanks, Kyle. Take care. Good night. <laughs>